The state has accused you of the murder of Fred Casely. Are you guilty or not guilty? I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. Could you tell the audience, the jury, what happened next? Well, in his passion, he, he tore off my robe and he threw me on the bed. And, and, and Mr. Hart's pistol was lying there between us. And then? And then we both reached for the gun, but I got it first. And then he came toward me with this, this funny look in his eyes. He was angry and wild. Wild! Wild! And did you think he meant to kill you? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So it was his life or yours? And not just mine. I closed my eyes and I shot. In defense of your life. Life. To save my husband's innocent, unborn child. <sighs> what a bullseye, huh? And welcome, 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 welcome to the podcast that I think does what it says in the tin. It's best film ever. My name is Ian. And I'm Liam. And just for anybody who hasn't caught this before, Liam, let's just introduce the premise. Basically, Liam, you and I go see a lot of films together, don't we? Yeah, we do. And when we're done, we usually sit around and talk about it for a bit. And about, I don't know, 16 months ago, I guess, for Christmas, I 17 months now, I got you a uh, poster with the top 100 films or 100 bucket list films you're supposed to see before you die. And we got through eight. Eight. Yeah. <laughs> and the sad part is, I think we were having these conversations afterwards. Going, oh, I really like that. Or, oh, I didn't like that one so much. And, and having uh, our conversations were better than that, folks. But we were having discussions about why we liked it or didn't like it so much. And we thought, A, we, we should be doing this more often. But B, these conversations are all right. And thus, the idea for a podcast was born. And do you know what episode we're on now, Liam? Um, 12. You say that every time. <laughs> <laughs> One of these times you'll be right. Uh, we are on episode 10. Episode 10 today of best <laughs> film ever. And you know what? I'm, I'm really kind of impressed or happy or whatever. The, all the above. Because I, I wasn't sure when we first talked about this. When I kind of sheepishly went, do you want to do a podcast? And you were like, yeah. I was like, oh, are you serious? Uh, I, I'm not sure if I thought we were going to get to this or, or, or this sort of thing. And so I'm, I'm very, very happy about that. And we're not alone here today, Liam. We're joined by our perma guests because we like to watch films as a communal experience, but we can't do that now thanks to uh, the lockdown that's happening right now in the UK. So we've got some perma guests. So if we can't watch films as a communal experience, we can review films as a communal experience. (laughs) So let's allow our perma guests to introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Ellie. And I'm Georgia. And for the last, I don't know what it's been now, five, six episodes or something like that. Um, we've been doing this kind of around a virtual roundtable as opposed to at, at the home studio of awesomeness, one might say. So <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a, a big thank you, though, to anybody who's who's uh, downloaded an episode. Uh, it was by far our most successful weekly, actually, in... Uh, like we, we we got a lot of downloads, relatively speaking, for what we've been doing. For what we've been doing. I think even last episode, we sort of had a mark we wanted to hit. And I said, yeah, I think we'll hit it. And we like doubled the amount that I thought we were going to do that week. So uh, I'm really quite happy. So if you've downloaded a single episode, folks, thank you so much, especially if you actually bothered to listen to any of them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So today we are reviewing Chicago. Chicago. And as we've all said before, at, at, at various points, I think especially during the Moulin Rouge episode, we all have a background to some degree in musical theater, amateur, or well, both amateur musical theater and seeing professional musical theater. 
So as a result, do you find yourself, guys, do you, you find yourselves liking um, liking musical theater based movies like musical movies? Or do you find yourself unable you find you able to separate it from the idea of what it's like to put on a show versus a film? How is that for you when you see films, maybe not Chicago, but films in general of that genre? Depends yeah, if they're I, good or not. <laughs> yeah, I tend to separate them. I see the film as the film and the show as the show because nine times out of ten, what you see on screen is not what you transfer onto the stage and vice versa. Yeah. So there are different limitations with stuff. Uh, mainly if there's like outdoor stuff or quick changes, you know, so things adapt and change. So you've got to see them as different. I think, as a general rule, I really like them. Um, the Phantom of the Opera film is awful, but to me that just doesn't exist. Um, but yeah, I think most musical films I, I really enjoy, and I think it's a completely different medium, obviously, to the stage shows, and I enjoy them for different reasons, but I always tend to enjoy a good musical, whatever format it's in. Because, I mean, obviously they're very, very different, although we deal with the same subject matter, technically. There's very, very different kind of advantages to both, because if you're watching a musical on a stage at the West End or on Broadway or at your local amateur theater house, um, you can kind of choose with your eye to focus on anybody you want to focus on. And as someone who's directed or helped direct a few things, you kind of say to the guy in the back row, now hang on now, someone might be watching you, because I always see the guy in the back row who's not paying attention. It, mm. it just rips me from it. They stick out like a sore thumb, yeah, don't they? Yeah, and, and they kind of ruin it because the one who's not acting in sync is the one you focus on and then can't stop watching. In a film, it's a little bit different because the director can put your eye wherever they want your eye to go. As a result, right. as a result though, sometimes you don't get that feel of bigness in a film musical that you get. As a result, something like Mamma Mia, where if you see like a live stage, stage production, which I haven't, but just let me just use that as an example, those typical big, happy musicals where everybody has to be like, super tenning it's the greatest dave it ever was tenning because the person at the back of the of, of of the theater needs to be convinced that everybody's really excited well on on film it's a lot more nuanced and if you were to go ah, it could come off looking really cheesy which to me is the mamma mia effect i go okay you're all just way too happy about this boat coming in like <laughs> what is going on i think you've got to have a lot more people in a film to get the same effect as a full stage and, and you have to, like, frame it perfectly. Yeah. But, I mean, there, there are also advantages. And I think Chicago, maybe more than any, maybe I'm tipping my hand here, uh, really demonstrated how to take advantage of the advantages that film Absolutely. can allow you to have. Because I've seen Chicago a couple times, and uh, I've always kind of gone, I saw, I saw the film first, to be fair, but I've always kind of gone, never captures that same essence yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's a bit too weird. Uh, Georgia, a bit of a personal one for you and myself, because this week, um, well, do you want to explain why why this is kind of a bit of a thing this week? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, back in December time or early January, I can't remember what it was, um, myself and Ian were both cast in a pr- local production of Chicago, so the stage version. Um, and it was supposed to be closing night tonight. Oh, no, last night yeah. as of filming. So Saturday night as of filming um, was supposed to be our closing night. Um, but obviously we didn't get to do it because of lockdown. And it, missed, it, it, it was very, very strange going from rehearsing twice a week with a group of people that you get to know. And they're quite intense rehearsals. At least they were for me because I was dancing and singing in pretty much all of the songs. I mean, for you, Ian, it was a bit of a different experience. Uh, it was still really demanding for me because they actually wanted me to do things in rhythm. 
It's not so much rhythm. I have rhythm. I don't have coordination, which is the worst combination you can have. Because if you have rhythm but not coordination, you know you're screwing up. Because, because you can hear the beat and you're like, I know something should have happened on that beat. What, what was it again? That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why together we get on well. We do get on well. So, so yeah, this is. I, I think a little bit of this is. I don't know if it's. I thought it was going to be therapy. Is it half therapy, half punishment? George, I don't. Know, it was a little bit of both, maybe. Yeah. No. It was. Re- I found it really, really quite strange watching it because obviously we got to the point where we had pretty much set everything in the show. Um, obviously, it's not quite elaborate not, as not elaborate everything. as the film is. Oh, well, all the songs we had. Not my song. Not your song, but that you were you were you that would, would have been just been you, wouldn't it? Oh, well, I, yes, audience members everywhere. Ian was cast as Amos, and he would like you to know that. Um, I'm I sure was a dancer, um, which meant I was, right in, <laughs> I was in pretty much all of the um numbers that had any sort of chorus involvement, um, and we'd set all of those, which meant that all of these big songs that you get throughout the film, minus Mr. Cellophane, um we had set and knew dances to and knew the backing harmonies to and all of that kind yeah. of thing. So watching a film with those in and then kind of knowing in depth that knowledge of the song is really, really strange. Um, where even just the opening of all that jazz, I was I almost got felt a little bit nervous because that should have been the opening of the show getting ready to start moving rather than just sitting and watching it on a screen. It was very, very strange. Um, I didn't really find it therapeutic at all watching it, actually. I thought it was more torture than anything else, oh, okay. um, which is a shame because I really like the film, but um, it was strange watching it now. Uh, um, I didn't not enjoy it, but yeah, no, it, it was more weird than anything else, but I think it's because I had such a deep connection to it almost all of it at this point. Okay, so let's talk about the film a little bit then. Uh, a little bit of context to warm it up. Uh, Chicago, 2002, directed by Rob Marshall, who also was the choreographer for the film, which you don't hear a lot about, actually. That's weird. That yeah. is more of a stage thing than yeah. it is a um, yeah. film thing. Yeah. And it was actually his directorial debut for a officially released film. He directed wow. like one episode of The Wonderful World of Disney, <laughs> and he only wanted to do choreo for that, I think, to keep that director's sort of virginity, if you will. But technically, this is his feature film debut uh, as wow. a director. Uh, originally, there was a different director attached to it, but uh, Chicago is based off a 1975 musical, which a lot of people know this, but the original musical was a bit of a flop. It was, uh, it didn't, it wasn't highly regarded because of its cynical tone and uh, kind of left. Uh, unceremoniously after I don't know a year year and a bit Uh, but there was still plans for a film because Bob Fosse wanted to direct a film similar to he had done to Cabaret I think he directed a film version of Cabaret to high regard and so he was going to do the same thing and he had people lined up in key roles in his head uh, things like names like Goldie Hawn were, were, were brought up and whatnot. and then um well he died and that's going to probably put a stop to things like that (laughs) <laughs> because without the name value of Bob Fosse, you know, really no one was clamoring for a film adaptation of a musical that didn't set the world on fire. Mm-hmm. And then in 1996, they re-released, they do what's called a revival, 
in, on Broadway by bringing the show back, and it's an absolute runaway hit, and it set all sorts of records for like it's the most successful revival of all time, it's the most successful American musical of all time. Da 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 da. da. So as a result, once again, interest sort of picks up. And originally, there was this guy called Nicholas Hintner, who was supposed to be kind of lined up for it, and um, there were names such as Madonna who were attached to the project potentially. But the big one is that Roxy Hart was lined up to be Charlize Theron. Really? Yeah. Who is that? Charlize Theron is an actress, I believe, of South African descent. She's won at least one Oscar for Best Actress. If you've seen the Dior adverts, they play a lot before films where she's like a a blonde model, like walking down like a runway Mm. in a gold dress. That's all. She she almost looks like like a walking Oscar statuette in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I kind of know what the Dior adverts all look like, but I couldn't picture the face to them. She she is right now the face of of Dior. So. Uh, that's, the unforgettable face yeah. of Dior. <laughs> she was also, I think she won a, the Academy Award for Monster, I want to say. Monster. And she really wanted this, really, really wanted this. But she's a tall woman, which Renee Zellweger, of course, is not. And so, um, but when the director changed from Nicholas Hintner to Rob Marshall, Rob Marshall kind of reopened all of the kind of decisions. And it's interesting because uh, Miramax, who made this film, who were the distributors for it, uh, when they called Rob Marshall over, they called Rob Marshall to have a meeting about making a film adaptation of Rent. Because Re- <laughs> And so he showed up to the meeting and they said, so we want you to do Rent. And basically he went, that's great, and pitched them instead <laughs> on the idea of doing Chicago. And they went with it and they shelved Rent for like three years. That's amazing. So he walked in and said, this is really what I want to do. Um, it was filmed in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I know someone from there. I I, I know a Who's few that? Canadians. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I work with a couple. They're very nice people. Um, <laughs> and it was released on December tenth, two thousand and two. And the minute you start getting into December, our brain should start going Oscar bait, Oscar bait, Oscar bait, because you release the films you want to get considered for the Oscars at that time. It was held to pretty much universal acclaim. Uh, the Daily Telegraph here called it the best screen musical in 30 years and especially highlighted the use of the film's use of montage to tell the story, which is something you can't do, as we said, in, uh, on stage. You can't say, okay, now all of a sudden the actor's in a different costume for two seconds and now they're back <laughs> in the original costume. You couldn't do that without having like doubles. Um, Roger Ebert, who's considered at that point one of the two top American film critics uh, for the Chicago Sun-Times, called it Big Brassy Fun. Uh, It won six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It's the first Best Picture that we have looked at. It won Best Supporting Actress for Catherine Zeta-Jones. It won Best Sound. It won Best Costume. It won Best Art Design. And it won Best Editing. So we talked about the importance of editing, and actually Chicago Mm. did it to an extreme. It's very, very good. Uh, How uh, It was the first musical to win Best Picture since Oliver... Sorry, it has an exclamation mark on the end. Oliver. (laughs) I don't know how to use that exclamation mark. Oliver. There you go. Sure. (laughs) It's a very British exclamation mark. Oliver. It's a very British British film. (laughs) Absolutely it is. And so it won Best Picture in 68, and Chicago was the first one to win it since. Um, Premiere Magazine, though, in 2005, listed it on its, uh, well, its list, of the 20 most overrated films of all time. And it listed Chicago as one of them. They were wrong. Well, it depends on how highly you regard it. 
Very. Uh, it made $45 million. Sorry, it wasn't made for it. was The budget was $45 million, and it made about $306 million, 307 wow. So it did all right. It held a really unique record in that it held the record for the highest box office taking for a film that never made it to number one or number two at the box office in any week. How strange. And it, I mean, you think about we talked before about musicals and the kind of audience they attract, and it's never going to be that wide stage appeal unless you're Mamma Mia, I guess. But for the most part, like you know, it's never going to be that thing that's going to beat out the big sort of franchises and whatnot. Well, but especially it, if it came out in December with the rest of the Oscar bait films, it probably isn't going to reach one or two, is it, per week? Well, the minute you say nominated for Best Picture, although it draws a certain crowd, it also turns a certain crowd away. Yeah. Who goes, I don't want to see that. It's going to be all artsy and stuff like that. And Chicago, I mean, 1930s, gangland, musical spin on... on, on it's, it's it's not exactly popcorn movie-esque, is it? No. So... um. And it was also, at the time, the highest live-action musical film ever made, as far as gatekeepings, uh, which, of course, would be destroyed by Mamma Mia, yeah. which now holds that record. Uh, the other one, the highest film ever to make it without being number one or number two, that record was beaten, too, by Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Squeakle. What? <laughs> That's made over $306 million. But oh. has never been one or two at the box. Never underestimate the power of a kid's film, no that matter how bad insane. it is. I've never even heard of that film. Parents who want something to do with their kids on a Saturday yeah. afternoon, let's go to the movies. I'll have to talk yes. to you. I do appreciate the use <laughs> of the word squeakquel. Squeakquel's funny, yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it wasn't actually that horrendous. I've seen both of those. <laughs> oh, have you really? Of course you've seen bad. it. Okay. I have a younger brother, okay? I've uh, seen them. Who knows? Maybe maybe later on this year we'll have a review of this. No, please don't. <laughs> I don't think it qualifies for either of our podcasts. You could so use fine. you could use your wild card on it. Um <laughs> And the legacy of Chicago is that between Chicago, Moulin Rouge, and Eight Mile, which also came out around that time, those three films are kind of championed with bringing back the movie musical. And if you think back of all the films we've seen since then, live action musicals, it's not a small list, actually, There's, including Mamma Mia. I don't think Mamma Mia gets made if Chicago doesn't do what Chicago does. Yeah, because Hollywood is, is, a, is a copycat enterprise. I mean, look at all the film studios that are trying to do shared universes and things like that, right? Or found footage horror films or disaster films or insert trope X here. Well, Chicago proved that uh, a musical can be uh, highly successful uh, artistically and at the box office. So that was that. Uh, and as, as a final aside... Uh, there was so much cigarette smoking in this film, and they stylized it so much to make it look as sexy as possible, that this film led to a change in how the MPAA rates films and smoking references because of this film are now listed as one of the criteria that you have to warn audiences about before you start a film. <laughs> that does not surprise me. And that is Chicago. And I was like, I did not know that. So, let's go ahead. And we open up with... Uh, the film actually opens going into the eyeball of Roxy Hart as we hear a brassy trumpet sort of play the opening line. And that's because when... That would be it. And I hear it's harder to make that trumpet sound vocally than you would imagine. And <laughs> Rob Marshall 
Rob Marshall, when he pitched it, said, I want to imagine the whole show, in essence, is going on in Roxy's head. She's delusional. And that became a really nice platform, then, of how do you justify why everything looks like a show when, in the same breath, everything's like real-world gritty courtroom. In a musical, I think we're more likely to give them the credence to go, okay, I can buy into this. But in a film, how do you do it? You clearly distinguish she's a bit nuts. And that's kind of where they went with that. Just a bit. (laughs) And then we start off, and we're in a jazz club. And uh, as part of this, they're looking for the Kelly sisters, but the Kelly sisters are not there. And this is where we introduce or get introduced to Velma. Velma played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. What did we think about Velma? I, so good. I thought her introduction was really interesting because you don't actually see her face until she's on stage and the spotlight comes up. I hadn't realized that. So you get introduced to her um, by like her changing into her costume and her washing her hands and you hear her talking. And we see the but, blood on her hands when yeah, she's washing them. So you kind of get the backstory to her and, and a, bit, a sense of her attitude and how she treats people. But you only see her face up close when she actually starts the song and the spotlights come up. Um, and kind of her eyelashes lift up at the same time. You know, is that kind of... I think she's got very iconic eyelashes. Is that is that a bit of a weird thing to say? Or did anyone yes. else notice that Yes, that's well? a weird thing to say. <laughs> she, she acts with her eyelashes in this yeah. film quite a bit. I know I don't, what you mean. Ellie. I don't mean that her eyelashes in themselves are iconic, okay. but just the way that she uses them, like the kind of lift of them, it's kind of like, this is the start. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but there are portions of this film where I go, so much of this isn't the dialogue or her reading of the lines, but in the way that she emotes physically and with her facials. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Which uh, is important for a film with very little dialogue in it. Yeah, there isn't a whole lot in it. Anybody else want to talk about Catherine Zeta Jones for a second? Well, I think she has the, one of the biggest growths out of the two characters. I don't, I don't, I like her more. I'm more engaged in her than I am with um, Roxy. Story. Yeah, Roxy. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, she got this part because someone heard her singing at a Christmas party in Bermuda. <laughs> One of the producers, and they went, we're doing Chicago. We want you to have the part of Roxy. And she went, no, I don't want to do Roxy. I want to Ooh. be Velma. And you might think, well, I'm sure she's some great reason. No, she just wanted to sing all that jazz. And she knew that Velma <laughs> sings all that I jazz. I totally understand Nothing that. else mattered to her. She just really wanted to do that thing. And the other interesting thing is her choice of haircut, because they wanted her to have long hair. And she no. went, absolutely not. I want a bob. And it's not for any sort of artistic reasons for like, oh, it's set in the 30s, da 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 da, da. It's because she said, if I'm learning all these dance moves, I'm not having my hair fall on my face <laughs> so everybody thinks there's a double. We're not, no, no. You're going to know it's me. So give me a bob <laughs> so they can see my face. I love and that. And they will know that I've nailed every single bit of this. Oh. And I love my haircut in this. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Very it's drawn become iconic. It. Yeah. It's yeah. very iconic. Yeah. And so um, the whole opening sequence, uh, before she goes up, we see the, the ripping of the poster where it's the, the, the Kelly sisters yeah, and she rips, she rips it, it says Velma Kelly. And she goes, I can do it by myself. And that becomes a bit of a theme. Velma's sort of denial that she doesn't need a partner for this act that she does. And they go up on stage and there's two spotlights that hit. And of course, she's in one and the other one's empty. And then she proceeds to go all that jazz. I love her little like head nod to signal them to move the spotlight over to her yeah. from where it's supposed to be on Veronica, like preset. I love it. And the band leader has a bigger part in this than did in the uh, in, in the stage show. And it's played by Tay Diggs. So I just, it might, not be, it might be the only chance I have a chance to give him a, a shout out. In a very small, sort of very controlled role, I thought he was great in this. 
Yep. I'd argue that the the band conductor has a big part in the stage show. He got to introduce more. He got to introduce every song in this, whereas on the stage show, other characters do that. He gets one, but like Mama Matron introduces like three or four songs in the stage show. Yeah, I guess it's just in productions I've seen, yeah. even if he doesn't uh, introduce them, he has more interaction that's not necessarily vocal. Um, so yeah. yeah, it just depends what you've what you've seen. I guess. But I just felt in a really really controlled role, Tay Diggs was really quite good, and he got that because he was actually involved in the revival in 1995. Mm. Uh, so he uh, got okay. the he got the sort of dusted off. I don't know if he was the band leader, um, probably, probably, but yeah. Um, and so. I will say this about All That Jazz, our first song, and what a song if you're going to introduce, and we're learning, we're world building. It's 1930 Chicago. There's gangsters, there's jazz, there's this, there's that. And there's a great little tight dance number they've choreographed, which I'm sorry, that was a dance that was choreographed for one person to be the lead role. So either they're all really quick at adapting, because you went from two spotlights to we're just going to make up this, we're supposed to be a double act to a single act. Mm -hmm. Now, Grant, suspension of disbelief, I'm fine with it, but I did go... There are supposed to be two of them. We could have had one or two more awkward moments where she kind of gestures them over or something. And then enter Roxy. Roxy played by Renee Zellweger. Not Charlize Theron, but Renee Zellweger, who's at the back of the club, is a starlet wannabe. And she's there with Fred Casely, some guy who tells her that he knows the promoter in the club and is going to speak to him on her behalf and has already done so. And then he rushes Roxy off and grabs her backside as they leave. It fits in so nicely with the song. It's just seamless. I love it. Yeah, and, and there is some really cool cross-cutting between Velma doing her stage show and um, Roxy and Fred Casely going back to her place. And she's married. And we later find out he's married. But they're clumsily like banging into walls yeah. and sort of the sexual energy of the song mirroring the sexual energy well the, the sex energy yeah. that's happening between you, um fred and roxy and you kind of get these like bangs on like when they bang against the neighbor's door and the bang when they when she puts the picture down it's all like, in the off beats of the song so it's yeah. like all boom perfect that boom jazz yeah. boom and it's it's just and, fits in so well and you can see why they win an oscar for editing liam something you wanted to say yeah i was just gonna say that they do that all the way through the movie with yeah. each song uh, that starts off with that one and that carries it through, which is quite nice. I really, I really like that. Georgia? I just, just think it's interesting. Um, obviously, they've made a choice with the film to slightly edit the story um, because in the stage show, Fred it has nothing to do with getting Roxy a try or telling Roxy that he's going to make her a star or anything like that. He is just someone she's sleeping with. Um, so the Velocity made a choice to make try and make the character of Roxy a little bit more likable um, because at least she's got a bit more motive here yeah. um, because he's lied to her. Okay, in the, in the stage show, that's not a thing. It is even more cold-blooded of a murder than it is in the film. No, and there is no moment where um, Velma Kelly sees Roxy Hart in the club. The, no, they don't show no, up there. No. Um, and so... Um, we go ahead and the song finishes in this manic energy. And now we've jumped a couple of months in the timeline and Fred's dumping Roxy. And I don't know why Fred like has this, like, he waits right until they're done having sex. And then he just like dumps her rather cruelly uh, immediately at the end of it. And um, then she tries to protest that she's being dumped and he like pushes her and Lee, yeah, I lied to you. Deal with it. You know, what are you, you're never going to be a star. And then he pushes her and you're like, it's like they, I think that, 
what do you think? My thought on this is they do this because they want us to be okay with Roxy shooting him. Because we have to forgive Roxy, don't we? Oh, absolutely. That's like, just like I was saying, it's the film's conscious effort to make Roxy a more likable character. Because I think part of the reason the original stage show flopped so hard is because Roxy isn't that. This film redefines the role of Roxy. Mm-hmm. Um, because Roxy in the original Broadway recording is a lot older she can't sing or dance particularly well that's why she hasn't got anywhere okay um and all of this is like changed so in the film we like her a bit more um and it's an interesting decision but it definitely has influenced every other production of chicago that's happened since yeah i don't think she's a likable character in the film but i think she's a bit more forgivable and you do kind of you get elements of liking her but still kind of i don't know she's a bit reprehensible isn't she yeah. to quote miss sunshine and so roxy gets mad and grabs the gun and shoots fred casely a bunch of times and then uh we have two characters who enter very very quickly uh the first is uh well the first is amos okay played by john c Riley, who i think just nails this uh john c Riley, if you've seen wreck it ralph he's ralph um, I keep forgetting that. If you've seen Talladega Nights, he's in that. Uh, usually he does a lot of stuff with Will Ferrell, where he's like Will Ferrell's sidekick in a lot of films. <laughs> but every now and then he does a serious film and and shows that he's got some range and has some actual acting chops. And the year after this came out, um, there was a sketch at the Oscars that year. And it's, I think it's Jack Black and Will Ferrell on stage crying how it's unfair to be a comedic actor on Oscar night. Because no, one, and so John C. Riley comes up and goes, "Well, no, you take it from me. You do the funny film, then you do the serious film, then you do the funny film." And as a guy who's you know, who's extremely talented, but has more range than I think. If you were only used to seeing him in these sort of slapstick comedy roles, you wouldn't have expected. I love Amos. That's just that's just my take. Anybody else? Uh, anybody want to disagree or or, or agree? With that, by all means, I think he's a drip, but I think we're we're made to like him. Definitely, he's. I mean, he, has, he hasn't really got any negative characteristics. He's just a bit wet, isn't he? Yeah, I guess I was talking more about the, the performance by John C. Riley, but the character, yeah, absolutely, he's yeah. a drip. That's his, but he's the lovable schmuck, isn't he? Yeah. Like, no one dislikes I it, Amos. I think no. it's very easy to overlook the part of Amos um, as something that would be really easy, but it could be very easily done very, very wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that it is done so well in this is definitely an achievement. And I've seen it done poorly on like stage where they just yeah. haven't figured out the right balance to play with Amos. And because um, he, he can't be in on the joke and he can't be, you know, he's he's got to be consistent to what he is. Pretty much all of the other characters in it can be aware of the situation that's going on around them and the corruption. But if as soon as he's aware of the corruption and the fact that he is the butt of the joke, that completely ruins the entire character. Um, so the fact that they don't do that with this, um, I think is really good. They only came close to it slightly when they get him putting on the like makeup and the clown stuff. But again, because they've already mm. solidified that this is happening in Roxy's brain, yeah, it can't, you kind of get away with it. So, um, so at the same time this is happening, we then get the police are showing up too. And we establish, you have to infer it, that between what we've seen and now, uh, Amos has come home and they've got this plan to say that the guy who's dead was a burglar and that Amos shot him in self-defense because he was trying, he came in to find him like trying to maybe take advantage of his wife. And they've concocted this as being their master plan. It takes us to our second song, Funny Honey in which we have Roxy's imagining herself on a stage 
at the same time the police interrogation is taking place in the apartment in real life. And I think it's amazing how they have the police shining the torch into Amos's face and then they move on to Roxy and the torch becomes like the spotlight and she be- she gets backlit and, and it's just that seamless transition between the two and again like this idea that it's all in her head it's really really well done yeah and i don't know if you guys saw this in the bits or not but generally if it was in roxy's head or if it was legitimately on the stage when Val kelly is on the stage at the start all the performance stuff is really really oversaturated bright colors and yet the yeah. stuff that's yeah. not happened on the stage is stripped and i think it speaks to the phoniness of fame and the phoniness of what you see on the stage. You know, you're not seeing a loving sister a, in Belma Kelly at the start. You're not seeing a, a realistic thing. Over, you're seeing a production. And that means it looks, if it looks too good to be true in this case, it is. And Roxy very much doesn't necessarily want to be a great singer. And she doesn't want to be a great or talented dancer. What does Roxy want to be? Roxy wants to be famous. Yeah. And she thinks singing and dancing is the vehicle that will get her there. But at no point is it about mastering a craft. She's looking for a gimmick, she tells Fred early on. And so Funny Honey's great until at one point the police officer played by, I'm going to name drop here, Colm Fjord. And I bring him up because he's one of Canada's greatest classical actors, actually. <laughs> he's like, uh, I'm trying to think of a British equivalent. I mean, he's like an old... Benedict Cumberbatch? He's like halfway, age-wise, he's halfway between like Benedict Cumberbatch and like Patrick Stewart. But he's that kind of like theater actor. Like a proper actor's actor. He reminds me of the guy from Bridges of Spies. Oh, what do you mean, like the actual spy? Yeah, the guy who we he think reminds- is a spy. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's not him because that guy's English, of course. No, no, not. But he reminded me of him. What is his I name? Mark. Mark. That's going to bug me. Mark something. Anyway. <laughs> and so this is a part that doesn't exist in the stage show. These are all kind of like small little parts that get combined in this one where it's one guy, he's there as like the assistant DA, and then he shows up as a prosecutor, and he's all these various things. Rylance. Mark Ryland, thank you. Rylance. Rylance. Oh, Rylance. C-E. Yeah, R-Y-L-A-N-C-E. Yeah, he's excellent. Um, and so, um, and there's this great bit where when... So um, Colm Fjord, as the police, uh, not the detective, as the assistant DA, starts saying, well, damn it, deceased, Fred Casely. And he goes, what? Do you, uh, we know him. He's, at this point, he's starting to figure out my wife's cheating on me. And it's great because they cut to Roxy, who's in full like performance uh, fantasy land. But even she starts like looking over I like off, so off camera. So like it breaks that wall, which is imp- it's important. And you, this is why Chicago is so good in, on a movie because you can't replicate that on, no matter what you yeah. do, you, you can use lighting, you can do all these things, but you can't have the costume change and all those things that you can with film. Yeah. And it's brilliant. And there's this bit where she literally kind of jumps from the stage and pushes him in the kind of real life and breaks it. The fantasy's well. broken. Yeah. yeah. So it's like literally her whole body moves through that wall. So she very quickly after confesses in anger and after uh, telling him he's a disloyal husband. After telling him he's a disloyal <laughs> husband, which is great. And she ends up in jail and she's waiting for Mama Matron to come in and she has a small conversation with a woman who's smoking a cigarette. And she goes, Oh, Mama Matron's all right with you if you've got money. Expositional murderess. It's more of just expositional murderess because it's actually a cameo part. That woman was Cheetah Rivera, 
who played the original Velma Kelly in the 1975 oh, version of Chicago. I love it. So they gave her a moment in this, which I thought was great. That's fantastic. That's very cool. And so then uh, we end up being introduced to Mama, Mama, Matron Mama Morton. And Queen Latifah comes in. Queen Latifah, who I think is, well, before we say how we think she did, not the original first choice. The original first Mm -hmm. choice for this was Kathy Bates. Really? Really. I don't know who that is. Uh, if you don't know who Kathy Bates is, it's hard to explain it. Georgia, you'll know her as Joe from The Office. Oh, I know who she oh, is. Right, Joe okay. with the dogs. Liam, you know who Kathy I've Bates just, is, I'm assuming. I've just Googled her. Misery. Misery, yeah. Misery, Titanic. Yeah. Oh, Titanic. Yes, she's the unsinkable Molly Brown. Yeah. Yeah, very good. So, but she couldn't do it because she was doing About Schmidt, which was a film that starred Jack Nicholson in it. Fittingly enough, both Queen Latifah and Kathy Bates would both be nominated for their roles. For not, they would both lose to Catherine Zeta-Jones for Best Supporting Actress. So, can I just say, Queen Latifah looks sensational in this number. Absolutely. Yeah. I love the contrast between that and her like prison uniform as in, well. In her prison uniform, she has no makeup. and No actually, figure. No figure. And, and her performance, her vocal performance, just in, in line delivery, is so flat that I kind of thought it was, a, as opposed to Mama Matron, the singer in, in Roxy's head, who's going all out for it. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And at first I went, Queen Latifah, are you a bit vocally not up for this part? Because she sounded a little less than at the start. And then I realized, yeah. no, she was just saving it for the finish, like a good singer should. <laughs> realize it's, it, it's a full piece. You don't want to go tenning right off the start. You yeah, want to save it. I uh, do absolutely love um, the costuming, especially in this number, and Mum Matron Morton's, Morton's um, transformation because it is very reminiscent of drag, um, okay. and it's it's gorgeous. It's especially as um, drag does this thing where it completely transforms you and reveals like a different part of you. It's quite um, interesting to see this done very early on in this film um, with the complete transformation, like you were saying, from her in her prison guard uniform to this completely different character, but still believable that it's the same person. Yeah. And I think that's really lovely to see as well. In a film where sexuality is as important as it is as Chicago, mm. Queen Latifah definitely isn't running to play catch up on this one. She's She brings it in spades. She, she brings it in so spades. Good. Yeah. Uh, she, I think that's also why it's reminiscent of drag as well, because it is completely unapologetic. Unapologetic, um, but go ahead. Completely unapologetic, but completely. I don't even know what the word is to use. It's, I, I don't think it ever so goes. Well done. I don't think it ever goes into tacky. I don't think it ever goes no, that far. No. no, no, no. Like she is controlling everyone around her in this fake theater that is, is imagining. But she would. It's that kind of a performance. It's so classy, but yeah. that's also so, her character. She controls everybody in the prison as well. And so Roxy is brought to her cell and she starts to cry um, because she's, you know, if life was bad before with Fred Casely, I don't know what what prison's going to be like. But then all the noise around her sets up uh, uh, what I think is the the most iconic song anyway from, you can debate on which one is the best song, but the most iconic is definitely Cell Block Tango. Mm, It's really atmospheric, isn't it? And it's been parodied to death. I mean, if you go on YouTube, I was say, it's 
it's massively iconic as a musical theatre song in general, not even just from Chicago. It's one of the most well-known musical theatre songs. You can, you can go on YouTube and Google, like, the six Disney villains do their yeah. rendition of <laughs> Cell Block Tango. And, and, and they I want to see that. And, and they full-out costume up, and, and, and the, the, the kind of visuals from this film are so ingrained. Like, he absolutely nailed it. What I really love... It's a technical song, isn't it? Pardon me? Such a technical song to get right. It is. I mean, yes. yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody. Now, th- this is one advantage that, like, it's not like you're sitting there with a the film going as much. Wow, look at the artistry of that because you have as many takes as you want with film. Whereas you see it live and you're going, okay, that's that's something different. So maybe mm-hmm. there's a point there for impact of seeing it live, Ellie. Um, what I really, really love about this number is how. The, the atmosphere of the percussion coming from things that are in the film. So it starts off with a dripping tap and then you get the feet kind of walking along the kind of grates in the in the prison and the stomping from the, the dancing and things like that. And it all forms part of the percussion and it just fits in perfectly. I think if I've remembered anything from the one media class I sat in on, is that diegetic sound to non-diegetic sound? It is diegetic sound to non-diegetic sound. Yeah, boy. So they take the actual... <laughs> well, to be fair... Well, actually, I'm going to correct myself here. Because it's the song itself still is diegetic sound. Because for they can... Roxy, though, not for everyone else. Yes, but because we see the film through Roxy's perspective, that still counts. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. But the idea that we took actual raw diegetic sound and made something happen out of it was uh, quite effective. Um, and so we have um, Cell Block Tango, and I don't know if anybody was watching carefully enough. I knew it was coming, so I was able to see it. I saw it coming. Anyway, um, <laughs> when they go into the jazz nightclub at the start of the show, there is a painting on the wall, and it's got the six faces of the six murderesses in the painting. Hmm. One of them is facing away from the audience from the camera from facing the wrong way it's got to be the hungarian it has to be i really liked her costuming in this as well was completely different because she's in like this kind of balletic outfit and all of her dancing is rather than a tango it's more like splitty ballet oh this is good because i i I don't know these things so yeah Um, yeah so her dance is very very different to the rest of it her music is different from the rest of it Um, her lighting Her lighting is different. She has a white handkerchief rather than a red one. Um, Mm. It's very, very interesting. Um, And just for a little bit of backstory for uh, Katalina Hunyak, she is, if you understand Hungarian or have read the translation of what she does in this number, she essentially says how she was, she's an immigrant to America um, and how she has fallen for the American dream and believes that she will have a better life in America, this, that and the other. And one of the bits that you pick up from that is she says Uncle Sam. Um, yeah. Essentially, she is pleading to the country of America to save her. But because she is doesn't speak any American or English, um, she can't explain what's happened. Um, and in it, she explains how she was set up. Um, so she actually is completely um, innocent. Yeah. But obviously, there's that's left in some productions, that's left as a bit of a is she, wasn't she, was she kind of thing. But in this film, it makes it very, very clear that she's supposed to be innocent. But it's an interesting little bit that you don't necessarily know if you haven't looked into it a little bit more. Yeah, and the the semiotics in this are really well done. So as each of the six murderesses does their monologue, 
and the dancing in this. Liam, what do you think about? Because you're more likely to pick up on this than I am. I thought the dancing was outstanding, and that's me who knows nothing about dance. Well, well, I don't really know too much about dance. Yeah, but, but you're, you're you're more of a physical actor than I am. I think. Yeah, I I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it a lot more. Um, I like the technicalness in in dances and how how they portray that and come across. Because I mean, Catherine Zeta Jones surprised me with her her dancing. Yeah, as well as Rebecca Zellweger. They must have put a lot of effort into their dances. Um, because I was surprised by both of them, mainly more so by Catherine Zeta-Jones. But in the Cell Block Tango, Catherine Zeta-Jones doesn't do an awful lot of dancing until we get to the kind of chorus yeah. number. So her actual kind of explanation of her murder, not her murder, you know, the murder that she's accused of committing, doesn't have the same kind of physicality to it as the others. But what I thought was really interesting watching this one just a couple of weeks after we've done Moulin Rouge yep. was the fact that we've got the cell block tango just after watching the tango tango de Roxanne yep. in, in Moulin Rouge. And I was, I was thinking, oh, which one of them do I prefer? Oh, interesting, yeah. Because they're both really sensational dance numbers in the production. Well, in this one, I mean, what you had going for it was you had a, a combination of, of themes that go without the film, which are sexuality and violence. Mm. And the idea <laughs> that, that the tango a very romantic paired dance is being used as a metaphor for committing murders and crimes of passion. I thought it was yeah. really, really interesting. And therefore, Georgia, when you talk about uh, the, the Hungarian lady and how uh-huh. she's not doing a tango, she's doing like a ballet, which is a much different style than yeah. a tango yeah, still is. Still romantic. Still romantic, mm-hmm. but not, not as close, not as, maybe uh, not so as passionate. A- a tango is more aggressive. Yep. Is a more aggressive form of dance. Um, like tangos dance, traditionally are strong, are very um, big movements, but very precise movements. Whereas ballet is a lot more fluid. It moves slower often, um, or it um, has more grace to it, and is definitely le- it's not aggressive. Ballet that looks aggressive is done in a certain style that copies pe- bits of tango and waltz. Do you think it's um, it was done on purpose to show that she was the only innocent one? Oh, in absolutely. Yes. Um, she had more and, graceful dance. And I think it mirrors, if I may, with the handkerchiefs and the semiotics within that. So every other character had a red handkerchief. Usually that came from a description of how the murder was committed. Yeah, I really So when like it was, that. I shot him, uh, I shot two warning shots right into his head. The and handkerchief comes from head. underneath his hat. Yeah. Uh, when it was the arsenic, it came from the his mouth. His mouth, yeah. His she, mouth, and she pulls it out with her mouth. Again, a kiss that is all a kiss of death, very, very sexualized. Yet with his one strangle, when it yeah, the, the strangling. But when it's the and I stabbed, uh, he ran through my knife ten times, and the length of that mm. handkerchief on that one because ten times Fantastic. would cause a lot of blood. But then the white handkerchief, which symbolizes purity, or it could symbolize even surrender. And these are both things she's trying to do because she believes. I think it's catch. Or Katarina? Katarina. Yeah. She believes in the American dream. She believes in the idea that this is a country where the innocent should be found innocent and the guilty should be yep. found guilty. Boy, is she in the wrong show. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and there is that thing where you go, the innocent woman has the bad ending in this and the guilty yeah, ones don't. Yeah. And yet we, ign- tell me at the ending that we haven't forgotten about, about, about Katarina. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Tell it's- me that, that our morals haven't been shifted it's what makes this piece as a message as a moral as all of these 
things quite so significant if you can if you break down the story of chicago the production of chicago in whatever form it's in it is an absolute massively amazing storytelling device um and if you think about you can write essays about this yeah. this film and this show and um, there are a lot of musicals that are just base level um but this goes above and beyond that it's really quite impressive and although Catherine zeta jones didn't do a lot of dancing in this number uh Michael Douglas said that the bruises that were down her thighs from the days of filming just because of how intense it was. And I'll tell you what, you want to talk about the tango as an aggressive dance, the rage that was in Catherine Zeta-Jones's voice when she finishes her verse and goes back into the chorus. He had it. It was like a snarl. Yeah. It's such a raw animalistic snarl. And if you I want to believe and if you want to believe that she has killed her husband in this moment of passion because he slept with her sister and the rage that would be evoked from that, oh my God. And a good Velma Kelly needs to find the anger because it's there. And each of these women, for a moment, chose anger over reason, chose anger over freedom. And it needs to be sort of manifested itself. And it, it's just, I mean, this is the standard by which any version of Sublock Tango will ever be. And it helps when you can go over it week after week or day, whatever it is. But it's just fantastic. And we're ripped from this little moment by a steamer because Roxy's working in the laundry. And she overhears a conversation while delivering some laundry about a guy named Billy Flynn. And Mama Matron tips her off and goes, I can sort of arrange a meeting for you with Billy Flynn. And we get introduced to Billy Flynn. And he's built up to be this thing. And it's this great sequence where all the girls who were previously in these, and we didn't mention it, the costuming of Cell Block Tango with the black lingerie. Again, that sexuality and violence. Well, now they're in like these little skimpy red like showgirl costumes. Yeah, and so they're very, the, still very skimpy, okay. um, but very much a completely different style of costume. So they're like essentially bra and underwear, but are pink bejeweled and they've got massive feather headdresses yeah. and carry feathers and all these kind of things. So it's a completely different atmosphere. It becomes more of a um, showgirl than a murderer. So it does what it's supposed to. It's <laughs> Billy. He's not William. He's Billy. And that's kind of, you know, it makes him your buddy, your friend, but we want Billy. And you can slide on Billy more. We want William. It doesn't really work. Um, but, but, but you have that. And then we have the reveal where there's a silhouette. And the silhouette flips a coin to his shoeshine boy. And the shoeshine boy picks up the coin. But the shoeshine boy is Billy. And it, this is where we kind of get the whole play of there's what Billy wants you to see. And there's what Billy really is. And the Billy who he lets you see is all he cares about is love. He doesn't care about diamond rings and wealth and all these sorts of tokens. But then we meet Richard Gere uh, as Billy Flynn. We go, no, that's, that's like the singular thing he cares about, it's actually. the complete opposite. In fact, Roxy actually offers love in one of its most physical forms. Yeah. Um, instead of money and he completely turns it down so it's it's very interesting to he, see that comparison he goes good i'm glad you got that out of your system yes <laughs> now, now, now call me so when you good. have five thousand dollars um and so i will say this i don't want to talk about a lot of individual sort of moves but there's a bit 
where like all the girls are rolling on the floor. Yeah. And he's sort of like like laying on them, like with his head. So he's moving across. Oh, yeah. it's they just... make like a little car shape and then he pulls one of their legs as the handbrake. Yes, he does that too. It's just, it's so, I'm not surprised the director is, 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 is the choreographer. He clearly knew everything he wanted to do with this. So. And it's, it's the standard for every other production that's came, come after it. And I think that's why if you're very familiar with the film, it does then feel a little bit lackluster. If you go and see a stage production that doesn't take after the film. Um, so there's kind of two ways of doing it. You either do a traditional Bob Fosse, uh, 1975 or whatever it was, traditional route, or you go back and you do film film version. And I prefer the film version. It's not often, but I do. Maybe this is a good point to sort of talk about. Richard Gere is the only member of the main cast not to be nominated for an Academy Award. And he said he was watching it and everybody else was getting nominated. And he sort of his came and went and he went, you know, you know, I was in the film too. And I'm going, how do we feel about Richard Gere's performance? Not about the character of Billy Flynn. We, we can come to that. But about Richard Gere's performance in the film. Because I really liked it. I really enjoy it. I think he does a wonderful job as Billy Flynn. It's not, it's, again, it's another part that can be taken too far over one side. If it's too tacky, if it's too aware of it, if it's, or it goes the wrong way, it can ruin big elements of the whole show. Um but no, I think it's done really, really well here. I think Richard Gere is more of a, a character singer than a proper singer. I'll agree with you there. <laughs> you know, you, you. I mean, he started off in Greece, so did he really? He went, from, yeah. So he went strong singer in that, but it's more character driven. And I feel like in Chicago too, it's more character driven rather than singy singy. Which part did he play in Greece? Zuko. Oh, so he was a Zuko after after. Uh, I think he went on, he brought it over to England. Oh, okay. And then Paul Nicholas and the British actor took over from him. That's really so interesting. Yeah. Um, so he was not the first choice to play Billy Flynn. The first choice, the first first choice, actually, quite fittingly, is John Travolta. <laughs> and Travolta turns it down and Richard Gere later picks it up. It is the fourth time that he has gotten a film after Travolta has turned it down. The most noteworthy besides Greece, sorry, besides Greece, besides Chicago would have been an officer and a gentleman. He got that because Travolta turned it down. And American Gigolo. And American Gigolo. And there was one other one. I can't remember. Yeah, he was his go-to guy. So when he turned it down, Richard Gere would step in. It would be, would be that, he's that, you know, you want that that John Travolta type. Richard Gere was, yeah. no disrespect intended, but kind of like that B-plus version of John Travolta. Yeah. Yeah. And the other person who was offered this part, has anybody ever come across this? No. It's kind of funny because we talked a couple of weeks ago about how Heath Ledger was told he was too young to play the part of Christian and he never forgave Baz Luhrmann for it. This time it's an actor who himself turned it down because he felt he was too young for the part. And I think he was right. But how much different of a film would it be if you had Wolverine himself, the greatest showman Hugh Jackman, playing Billy Flynn? Do you know how old Hugh Jackman was at the time? He said he felt he was too young. He was in his very early 30s. Oh, okay. And yeah. he felt Billy Flynn needed to have an age. There was a power dynamic from that age. I think there absolutely is, but I think he probably, I mean, he, I think he could have done it. I think it, he would have smashed it. He'd have done an amazing I don't think job, it would have yeah. been massively different, honestly. I think the singing would have been a bit better. See, but, um, but that's about it because 
I think Hugh Jackman is, I rate Hugh Jackman oh, yeah. massively. Um, I don't think his performance that he's probably most well known for at the moment in Greatest Showman actually shows you how good he is. I would agree um, with that. I think he could have done an absolutely amazing job with this, but Richard Gere still does phenomenally. Just on a quick aside, are you arguing that Greatest Showman is the role he's most known for? At the moment. Wait, wait. What? This is Wolverine. Yeah, I know, but like in today's society, when was the last time there was a Wolverine film out? Liam, when did we go see Logan? Two years ago? Oh, that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, okay, so... Deadpool keeps bringing him up. <laughs> the film that Georgia knows him best in. No, I, I, no, no, no. I, I Georgia think... knows him best as the like original Curly in Oklahoma. Wow. Uh, yeah, me too. So um, I've got a complete I think I think it's... I, I, and Prestige says what? I think it's more... Not that he's known for it, but he's great in it. Um... I think if you're a musical theater kid or a musical or in the musical theater world, I think we've been exposed to a lot of Hugh Jackman as the greatest showman mm-hmm. uh, or even I, in Les Mis. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think part, kind of what I meant was at the moment, there's a new generation of people that will only know him from um, the greatest showman if they're not comic book fans. Um, to be, sorry, to be fair, he did start off his career as a, um, musical theater guy. Absolutely, that's what I mean. That's yeah. that's, that's where he was in Oklahoma and all that. He was he was West End. Yeah. Personally, I've never yeah. seen the X Men films, so to oh. me, he is much more the musical theater side of things. But <laughs> I know, don't know how that sits if you have seen them. This is a great time to break out the socials, please. I'm gonna get a poll up. What it's got nothing to do with this with this week's film, but what do you most know Hugh Jackman from? Is it the X Men or is it the Greatest Showman? Go ahead, Georgia. Do you want to hit or our, something uh, else? I'm going to give him two choices. Just two choices. Which one is his <laughs> okay. most iconic role? Um, X-Men or Greatest Showman? And Georgia, what would our socials be? We are at Best Film Ever Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. I was looking at you for affirmation then because yeah. I keep getting them wrong. But you I do think keep I got them right this you, time. you got it right, so I let you sit there. <laughs> but it was, I don't think the audience needed to hear what you weren't sure about. It. I, think they, I think they got that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is at best film ever pod on both the Twitter and the Instagram back to Billy Flynn and his introduction. So the song ends and then uh, Amos and Billy have a lovely scene together where Amos has to pay him for uh, the legal services. They don't have enough money. And Amos's job here is that Billy can explain the defense to Amos at the same time. Therefore he explains the defense to us and what they are going to do, and how they're going to auction off everything she's ever done in order to raise money for her defense. And uh, during this everything. time... Everything? <laughs> yeah, everything, everything, yeah. And during this time, uh, they give Roxy a makeover, <laughs> which is about three and a half minutes of screen time, but they give her a makeover, and we find out that Mama Matron 2 is feeling the Roxy love and has given herself the dyed hair, which only lasts about one scene. But she does have it. And then we have uh, one of the more fun roles. I, I threw out a question on my own personal social media about what's the what, what's your favorite song, and more than one person came at, back at me with "We Both Reach for the Gun," where uh, in order to do the sort of metaphor for how a lawyer creates and crafts a narrative, they have Roxy as a mannequin's dummy, and uh, Richard Gere, uh, Billy as the uh, as the master. Of the dummy? I don't know what you call them. The puppet master, yeah. Puppeteer? Puppet master? Sure. Ventriloquist. That's the word I'm looking for. Ventriloquist. Ventriloquist. It's not just controlling the puppet. It's actually doing the whole... His his lips never move, almost. And then he goes up and he's kind of actually 
controlling the strings as well, well later on. Yeah, we see that everybody in the press corps are like marionettes with like uh, strings attached to them. So he's both the ventriloquist, but the puppet master as well. And it's a great song for building character. And again, just that split visuals between the real, what's really happening and then what's happening in Roxy's brain. Because she's been told Billy Flynn will control and he'll become the real star. And Roxy's starting to get jealous of her own high-priced attorney and the attention he gets. Because she, again, she doesn't want to be innocent even. She wants to be a star. She doesn't want to die, but she wants to be famous. And every time she gets a little bit of taste of fame, she just wants more of that. This is partly Velma's fault as well, though, because just before we both reach for the gun, Velma says to Roxy not to let Billy hog the spotlight and says, you're the one they're here to see. Yeah. So I think that kind of puts the ideas in Absolutely. She doesn't get there by herself. But I think, see, anybody who would say that Richard Gere's, Richard Gere's phenomenal in this number. His physical, he just gets it. Can we just talk as well about how amazing Renee Zellweger is in in this number? Her movement is incredible like kind of acting as the puppet, like the way that she flops and things. And then you get him controlling Mary Sunshine as a puppet. And if you just compare Miss Sunshine, to, it's not that Miss Sunshine does a bad job, but if you compare that to Renee Zellweger, it's a marked difference. Who we should mention, um, played by Christine Baranski, who also would go on to play in Mamma Mia. So she was in the previous best-selling musical of all time. And then would be in the one that would defeat it to be the best-selling musical of all time. So you want to make a lot of money, I've learned, just just cast Christine Baranski. Um, and then, um, so that that ends. Uh, we, we find out that um, Harrison, our DA, played Guy Colmfjord, is going to be looking for, for, for the death penalty. Uh, oh, there's a great old-time newscast in the middle of it. Did you catch that? Where it's like all no. this like black and white footage, and we hear like that old oh one over here. We've got only well, look this 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 lady paid twenty dollars for a little bit of Roxy Hearts, whatever. Maybe she'll be some of that Roxy charm. And look at the yeah. dolls flying off the shelves. Everybody wants to be like Roxy. Just don't let them know what they did. Ah, oh, that was great. It was again just a little bit of put me in that world. Uh, and then we go into the song Roxy, sung by Roxy. And this is Roxy's dream. Her name is in big letters. She's got boys all around her. And she's supposed to be like a star. And I don't know what it was about it. I just didn't feel Renee Zellweger as a superstar. In I think like, this is the important song, isn't it? Do you know what that reminded me of? To me, it seemed like um, they were trying to make it look more like Marilyn Monroe in this scene. Trying to make her look a star. Make her look bright. Make her look the, the pinnacle of her success, if you like. Um. Yeah, I think I guess by 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 design. I think as the audience, some of us at the very least, will be um, familiar with that kind of, uh, of of the Marilyn Monroe type, which would later become borrowed by Madonna, and then slightly more as we go down, it pops up here and there. But really, it's those kind of two two big ones: Marilyn Monroe and and Madonna. And it's supposed yeah. to invoke, I think, images of that. I don't know what it was about Renee Zellweger. I just didn't feel it. Whether it's supposed to come no. off like it's flat, I, I can't imagine that's the goal. It might be like my one kind of slight criticism amongst a much bigger pantheon. I think that Renee Zellweger has a very different kind of sexuality to Marilyn Monroe. And perhaps them trying to kind of make them the same thing just doesn't quite work. Um, and trying to sort of dress them and present them in the same way is never going to actually look the same. 
Um, but I mean, I really, really like the number Roxy. And I, my favorite bit is when she she goes, sing it. And then her name just kind of flashes up in lights and it's underneath her feet. Yeah. So you've got these red lights of Roxy. I think that's a really cool image. Yeah. I mean, the... Yeah, go on. No, you go ahead. Everyone wants to do their name in lights. So that's quite a common thing, isn't it? And again, still black and red, right? That's that color scheme yeah. in it. Yeah. And uh, let's maybe it's going to talk about the the, the visuals because I don't know if I'll remember to bring this up later. The visuals and the difference between how Renee Zellweger and Catherine Zeta Jones are presented. Now, granted, more often than not, we see Renee Zellweger as a blonde of some degree, mm-hmm. and more often than not, we see Catherine Zeta Jones because her 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 complexion just works better as a brunette. Although I'm really interested to see Kath, uh, not Catherine Zeta Jones, um, the other one, Renee Zellweger in um, Judy, which yeah. has just come out because she's brunette in that, isn't she? I've seen some versions of Chicago of a stage show where they make them look, where they've had them both be brunettes of even kind of comparable size, and it's hard to distinguish, but I think you've got Renee Zellweger, you've got a short blonde um, with, with one type of figure, I guess, and in Catherine Zeta-Jones, you have a tall brunette with a different type of figure. Catherine Zeta-Jones, who I didn't mention yet, is pregnant during this film. No way. Yeah, really? yeah. Uh, That's incredible. Once she starts to show, they start uh, shooting her from different angles and hiding things with the occasional double. But they got all the dancing sequences, I believe, done at the start. Yeah. So that she could do that and do the acting stuff. So even the idea that she's, you know, she's got that much physicality. Because it's it's obviously a lot of exertion, isn't it? And, you know, you you have to be careful. and. That's that's amazing that she managed to do all of that. But how important is the, the blonde and the brunette, the tall and the short? Because I think it's really important to distinguish these two instantly as naturally they're not supposed to get along. And we see that visually. Yeah, chalk and cheese, definitely. Yeah. I don't really notice the height so much in the film. Oh, Catherine Zeta-Jones is, is considerably um, taller, is she not? I, yeah. I kind of, I noticed at one point that she was taller, but it wasn't like a marked difference to me but definitely the blonde and the brunette thing i think really works and, and the ironic, go ahead the ironic thing is on the on the dvd case they make him the same height yeah they do <laughs> they do maybe that's why i don't notice uh, actually, actually really interesting remember that in a bit would you um yeah. so and also just the songs are so clever you know what i mean like frank ebb and oh i had the guy's name Kanda. Yeah, John Cander. John Cander? Is that right? Frank Cander? John Cander? I have Cander? no idea what's Cander and Ebb, anyway. Who, and I, Ebb, I believe, was, was the lyricist. Just so clever in, 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 in the creation of these songs and kind of the self-awareness of the songs and what it's going to mean. Um, and then the song ends, and basically Velma's realizing now that Roxy's taken her shine. Nobody cares about Velma Kelly. She's literally in, on the back page, whereas Roxy Hart's on the front page. And Mama tells her, doesn't she, to go and like go and suck up? And she went, "That'll never happen." And then, of course, in in pure movie style, the literal (laughs) next shot is her going, "So." And the narrator says, "Velma Kelly in an act of desperation." Desperation. (laughs) And she does a song called "Can't Do It Alone," which basically song is being really kind because generally it's just her introducing a bunch of dance steps. Because and then you ba da ba ba da and she's just kind of like singing notes as she dances. But the bit where she's on the balcony and she's dancing, she is very much singing at the same time, and it's such intense dancing as well. And I just thought it was fantastic. She was able to keep the control. But I've just got my notes. How good is Catherine Zeta Jones in this number? Amazing. 
Liam, like we talked earlier about emoting and physicality and your facials to tell a story when the words aren't there for you to do it. And I think this is an example of that, isn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to rave about Catherine Zeta-Jones because I'm not really a big fan of her work. But in this, she shone more than anybody in this film for me. And that's due to her physicality and her facial expressions and to her arc of her character and everything for me. So she surprised me in this. So, yeah. And so the, the song ends, and she kind of is hanging on out of desperation. And this is when the shift has happened, because at the start, even though she killed a guy, Roxy's kind of like this lovable, I think, kind of underdog, and Velma's mm. being really cold. And, and in an earlier scene we didn't talk about, she refuses to help Roxy. Keep and at this off point, my underwear. Yeah, and at this point, they've sort of swapped spots. And now Velma's going, can you help me out? And Roxy goes, so where's the part where you blew his brains out? We see they've truly reversed fortunes. But in the word of John Lennon, instant karma is going to get you. Because when Roxy turns this down and thinks, I'm the, f- I'm the most important one, in comes Lucy Liu playing, I think it's like Kitty Gone to Hell in a Handbasket in the original in the original script is what it's called. Something like she's that. definitely called Kitty, yeah. Yeah, and she's uh, flat out like murdered her husband. Now, this is from the stage show, and I bring this up because it would have been interesting. And I want to know why they didn't change it. Because the narrator tells us that she got home. Well, actually, it's the narrator in the stage show. In this version, it's Richard Gere at a dinner party telling other people mm. about the story. And it says he came home, poured herself a drink, and then noticed something strange. And a, 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 a female head pops up in front of the bedsheet. Something very strange. And a second female head pops beyond the bedsheet. That's the same. Yeah. But in the stage show, it goes one further and goes, something extremely strange. And a male head then pops up from underneath <laughs> the bedsheet. And the idea is kind of being that he's kind of been involved in this wild four-way with a guy, too. That's the big joke. A guy. And, in the uh, 1930s as well. In the 1930s. I don't think the jokes... Um, I don't, I don't think it's a cruel joke. I think it would be strange if, you know, the, the, the trope would be, oh, is she not me with another woman? It would be worse with two women at the same time. With two women and a man, you'd be like, what? that's not something you hear about every day. That's very strange. So as a result, we get this. And so she kills everybody in the, um, she kills everybody with like, like a Tommy gun, just wipes them all out. And now Richard Gere has a more interesting client than he did before. And Roxy, this is even more exciting. And now um, Roxy starts to panic. Miramax, who was the head of the Miramax film studio in the late, or the late 90s and early 2000s? Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Do you know who Harvey Weinstein wanted to play Kitty? Britney Spears. Really? He was adamant that they fly to Canada and pitch Britney Spears about being Kitty. And the director's going, you can't put Britney Spears in this film. This is a hard, edgy film. Now, we can all wonder what reason he may have had for wanting to cast Britney Spears. Uh, I, will, I, will leave, I will leave that to people to surmise their own expectations. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to consider, not say that it is the case, but to consider whether or not um, yeah. his reputation would have been furthered in this situation. But in the end, uh, Rob Marshall, a director, wins, and they do not pitch Britney Spears. But I thought an interesting fact about Kitty. 
in fairness, I think the role of Kitty is fairly small and like I don't see a problem with Britney Spears playing that role. It's just such stunt casting, isn't it? Oh, it definitely yeah. is. It's definitely kind of draws an extra appeal and not necessarily for the right reason. But I don't think she'd have like perhaps she wouldn't necessarily have done a bad job in the role because it's such a small part anyway. I don't know because Lucy Liu can act. She does a really good job in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a very small scene. I don't think it's, it's to me, it's not very significant. Okay. But, um, I appreciate well, that Rob Marshall was so detail oriented that he was like, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, fair enough. But um, how old was this been back then? 2002? Well, that's a good point. 21? Mm. 21? I'm trying that's to think. very young to be coming home how to your husband. Were, how old would we have been? 22, Liam? 21, 22? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. she's about the same age, I think. Is she? Yeah, yeah. I think she was a teenager. Late teens, but I think she was in, a teenager. In 2002, Ellie, would you go I'll ahead and have a look at it? Up, up? Yeah. Thanks. Uh, was there, is there anything before you look it up that you wanted to say? Because you were. Yeah, um, I, th- I thought it was really interesting that um, with Kitty it was described as a triple homicide, um, whereas obviously Velma's is a double homicide and Roxy's is only a single. So it's kind of like, it's not just the fact that she's so much more you know, crazy <laughs> um, and that she makes this massive scene and she's really rich and all of the, the extra stuff that goes with the character of Kitty. But By the fact she that she's killed Kitty, okay. that, the fact that she's killed that extra person is kind of like, oh, I've one up to you again because of this. And this is kind of a theme in Chicago. If you blink, someone's going to one up you. Exactly. It happens yeah. to Velma. And then, of course, everybody thinks they're the last one in the chain. So Velma thinks she's the last one. Then it's Roxy. And then it's Kitty. But to be fair. Britney Spears was 21. 21 at the time. So, um, we get this great bit here where um, Roxy figures out that she's not going to have the attention, so she creates this other story, I'm pregnant, falls down and says, don't worry about me, I just worry about the baby. It's very clever. And they cut the number, My Baby and Me, which is present in the stage show, but not here. We hear an underscore of it musically when they like go to go to a doctor's office mm. and they're like, "Do your button fly up?" Yeah, because that comes, that comes at this point. Yeah, but it's just an underscore. It's not actually ever sang. Yeah, I wrote down that there was an instrumental of it, but I didn't actually pick up that it wasn't kind of in the film later on. I guess when I wrote that down, I was just expecting it to appear. To be fair, for a film, I mean, you're already pushing the lock to agree with the audience with how many numbers you're putting into this. I think someone like My Sweet Little Baby and Me, I just think it's, tonally, I think it lifts us somewhere we don't need to be right mm, now. I, do, I think it's probably my least favorite song in the musical. Okay. And then we have, from that into one of the favorite ones, I think, in the musical, we have Mr. Cellophane, where um, a- Amos goes in to see um, Billy Flynn, and they tell him that she's pregnant, but that he couldn't be the father, because they want him to announce that he's divorcing her for the plan they're going to have in the courtroom. And so at this moment, we get a song from John C. Riley as Amos. And the song's basically about no one pays attention to me. And there's a moment of built-up rage that escapes at the end. And during this song, uh, John C. Riley dresses up in full clown makeup and does a little clown dance and has a nice little rage note at the end of it. But again, because you're able to do the montage between the real world and the fantasy we get to see John C. Riley doing both of these simultaneously. Because if you walked into the, the, the lawyer's office looking like a clown, literally, mm. you'd be like, okay, it's taken away a bit of the edge, isn't it? Yeah, it wouldn't work. Um, Didn't you also think that um, not only was he the clown, but he also had the um, movements of 
uh, Charlie Chaplin, the kid. There's a little bit of Charlie Chaplin of a silent acting in that, Is yeah. That, like, that kind of side lean. Yeah, a little bit of that. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, John C. Riley is actually a big clown enthusiast in in real life, mm-hmm. and so he insisted on two things. He insisted on designing his own uh, makeup, and he insisted that he that, that the the film include a sequence of him applying the makeup. He said that was important to show him becoming the clown. And I thought to myself, what is it with this podcast and clowns? It's the third <laughs> film now where we've had someone in clown makeup, but two of them are the Joker and Doc night right so well, two of them are the joker yeah exactly yeah like the films are joker in the dark yeah, night yeah that's okay. what i was saying yeah well still th- th- three <laughs> three films with clowns in them come on send in the clowns <laughs> i think this is pretty it'd be pretty hard to find another one unless we do another batman movie it'd be hard to find another clown i think yeah we could do it <laughs> that's a good point we could do we could do we could do both the tim curry one from like 1990 and the new ones i feel like that's a challenge to find a movie that's just got like a really subtle little clown scene in it yeah like just a clown just appears in like a child's bedroom or something <laughs> like just, just a clown just, just yeah every movie from now on should have a clown in it that please not that be like the theme of the podcast <laughs> i don't want to be like like clowning around or Best something clown ever who are these clowns um, um but yeah, I I thought um, a really amusing cutscene of Mr. Cellophane was when he's in Billy's office and uh, Billy looks up and goes, "Oh, I didn't see you." It's just after the no, first yeah, chorus, no one does. yeah. So you've just had like that kind of a bit of a mini climax to the song, like never even know I'm there, and then oh, I didn't see you. And a really subtle thing it happens to the stage show too, but is the idea that every time that Billy sees Amos, he calls him Andy, mm. and that was a a famous variety show. In, in America, in the I don't know if it was the fifties or what it was, but a, the the Amos and Andy show. But he calls him the wrong one, and it's like setting the seed for what's going to happen later on. Yeah, and it's a hard idea, but no one knows who I am, no one notices me, and he keeps even if you just he says, "Oh, it's Amos." Like two minutes later, he's like Andy, and he's no, no, my name's Amos. But I think he does correct him earlier in he the does. song, doesn't yep. he? And then at the end, he says, "You still here, Andy?" Yeah, I'm still here. And so uh, Roxy and Billy start to have fights because things are going well. And Roxy thinks, well, it's my idea to be pregnant. I'm the one doing all the work. And so she and Billy kind of um, kind of have a breakup in many ways. Well, she fires him and he quits. Yep. And then we bookend this with our Hungarian friend is now doing a disappearing act. Such a change in the atmosphere. It's amazing. And the theater is shot in red. And she has a white spotlight on her. And she's also and this wearing is white the, again. This is in the fantasy version. Whereas in the real life version, she's in gray on a rainy day yeah. up by the courthouse because she's going to be hanged. And it's the Hungarian disappearing act, they call it. And in the in the theater version of it, uh, when she... Everything happens in... in, in stereo and it's it's simultaneous and she takes a step in the real world takes a step in the fantasy mm-hmm. a step and the same shot we'll focus on the feet we'll focus on the feet we'll focus on the rope we'll focus on the rope only yeah. in the fantasy it's around her waist and in real life it's around her neck and then the rope falls and in the stage production she's escaped we don't know where she is she's not there anymore in the real world we just focus on the dangling torso and legs and feet but we never we never show the face, and the juxtaposition of the raucous applause from the theater fantasy that we have carried over into the real world version very powerful, very it's disturbing, horrible, very disturbing, really, really moving. Um, 
And so uh, that's it. She's the first woman to ever be hanged. And now Roxy needs Billy. And <laughs> off camera, we don't get to see it, but they make up. And this is where Billy goes through his idea of what a thing is going to be. And by thing, I mean court case. Mm-hmm. Razzle. Dazzle. And she's suddenly just agreeing to everything he says, and she's yep. wearing the outfit. She's that wearing she the dress that she wanted, and she's knitting because she told him to knit. And it's like, yes, 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 I agree. Yes, absolutely. And so, Razzle Dazzle is a great metaphor, another big favorite of some people. Um, and even at one point, Lady Justice, who's blind, as Lady Justice is often shown as being, is <laughs> like in like a showgirl outfit, and like the judge is like, you know, it's like objection. He's like, uh, he's like sustained, and the guy's like, I haven't even said anything yet. It's like, it doesn't matter. And the whole idea being, very cynically, that justice is irrelevant, truth is irrelevant. It's all in how you spin it. And we just saw this because the innocent character just died, and, and the yeah. guilty ones are getting away with literally murder. Yeah. Um. And then Roxy, at the end of it, is delivered to the stand On to testify hoop. by an aerial hoop. I, I really appreciated the scene, actually. I've never noticed before how there's there's a hoop, there's trapeze, there's silks, there's all of these circus aerial equipment. And that's one of my hobbies. And I I'd, I'd never had noticed that that was in the show before. So I really, really enjoyed the scene. So Amos goes up to give his testimony just before this number, actually. And... Uh, um, Billy starts off by calling him Amos and it throws Amos because he's never been called the correct name. And so they get him to say, well, well, I thought that it was going to be a stranger's baby, but if it is truly my baby, then yes, I want my wife back. And they embrace and everybody like applauds and all that stuff. And then we have Roxy's testimony. And uh, during the testimony, uh, they produce, is this where they produce the fake diary? No, not yet. No, not that's yet. in Velma's, but... Can I just just backtrack quickly to the end of Amos's? Did you notice that at the end of it, he said, uh, well done, Andy? Yeah, at the end, he lets him go. He goes, well, well done, Andy. And the idea that he's been hoodwinked one more time. Um, so the testimony happens. Uh, they do this great choreographed number, very similar with back and forth to almost at the start when they were doing um, all that jazz. Or maybe it's a two-person version of um, both reach for the gun where like they're letting Roxy have a part of the action this time and they're making each other better. And it's a great moment where, you know, I had to save my my husband, my innocent husband's unborn child. And the jury's in the palm of his hand. And then we cut to uh, Velma and Mama Matron listening back in the jail. Mama Morton. What did I say? Mama Matron. Oh, okay, Mama Morton. And they're listening on the radio, and basically Roxy's stolen all of her gimmicks, including fainting. And at this point, I think it is in the stage show, they're supposed to sing the song Class, Whatever Happened to Class. But because we've established this is going on inside Roxy's head, it wouldn't make any sense now for them to sing a song because they don't sing songs in the jail. Mm. None of the songs in the jail have been real. They've all been in Roxy's brain. So as a result... You wouldn't have a song here that she's unaware of. You could go, what about cellophane? Well, she might have known that uh, Billy is about to try and turn Amos. So you can kind of argue she might have known this would happen. But she's got no way of knowing about the secret plot and whatever happened to to, um, class and yada, yada, yada. So that's why it doesn't appear in the film. And then Velma shows up. It turns out she's been given a deal 
uh, by Harrison, the DA, that she's off scot-free if she testifies against um, Roxy. I don't think this is in the original script. I don't think this is in the show. Does it? Anybody familiar enough with it? Oh, I'm not familiar with this. Yeah, no. I'm in the show. I don't know. We didn't get to set this part yet. <laughs> but, I mean, this seems like bad DAing. You know what I mean? If you're a district attorney, an assistant district attorney, like Velma kills two people. Roxy kills one. How is this a yeah. good deal for you? Unless you just really want to yeah, put her away for whatever reason. But I think the whole justice system in this film is completely warped. True. Like, but does, yeah. does, does Harrison ever come off as, except for when we, doubt's put in our brain, though, isn't Harrison a stand-up guy? He gets her to confess. He sees the truth. He finds the correct witness. Everything he does is on the money. He's not corrupt for a moment. Yeah, he's kind of portrayed early on as being very good at his job. He's the opposite of Billy Flynn, whereas Billy Flynn's everything about money. This guy's just very much, this is my job and this is truth and truth is truth. And he's equally good. We see how quickly he unravels Roxy's poxy lie early. (laughs) Roxy's poxy. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) So, um, and we're, we're told it's a tap dance and basically they've, there's a, a journal of, of Roxy's which is found, delivered by Mama Matron Mama Morton to Velma. And it's got Roxy saying how she's so glad that she's going to get away with killing the guy, wishes she could kill him again. But Billy Flynn questions this because he's going, this doesn't sound like the, the language of my client who earlier said yada, yada, yada. And very, very persuasively makes us think that Harrison has forged this diary and put this entry in in order to try and frame uh, Roxy. Because he's used very lawyer-specific words like erroneous. Yeah. Erroneous, and it was a word that he was about, about to throw in there. And so it is a really, really excellent job of it. And the whole time this is going on, though, it's cross-cutting between the uh, cross-examination by Richard Gere and a tap dance. Mm-hmm. Richard Gere had lessons for three months to learn how to tap dance. They you know, they I shot that. Myself, I actually thought to myself, was it really him? It was really that him. Was? That's well. interesting because I, I didn't really notice the tap oh, particularly. But but I was looking for it. So and like, yeah. well, I kind of. I mean, they announce it as a tap dance, and I kind. Of, I I used to tap dance, so to me, it is something that I would normally pick up on. But in this film, I just didn't really notice anything particularly technical about it. So for three months, he learns how to tap dance, and they shoot that in half a day. <laughs> so you have to kind of go, I mean, I guess he's going, nailed it, right? But in the same breath, three months for that. It's over, half a day. Right. Um, and so the verdict comes in. She's found, and there's this, those two sets of newspapers, innocent, guilty. And again, it says something about the media, right? They don't really care about you. What they care about is that you'll sell papers, and we literally see that. Mm. Yeah. We don't even get to be inside the courtroom. We're left outside, and we just see a white handkerchief floating, which was really, and that double reinforces white means innocence. Yeah. And not the guilty. Hungarian, yeah. So they put the innocent papers out. And briefly, there's a spiel for that. But then some woman comes in having killed her husband and her lawyer in like the car park. She shoots them on the steps yeah. of the courthouse. Steps of the courthouse. They take her right outside. And so nobody's interested in Roxy and they march her. She goes, I don't even want my picture. And he goes, well, you're free now. And then we find out that actually it was Billy who forged the diary. And she says, I get nothing. Yeah. She doesn't and have he's publicity. like, you got your freedom. She doesn't even care about no. 
the fact that she's been found not guilty is just I don't, I don't get the publicity the, the press have gone away so what's even the point so then Amos uh, so Billy leaves and then Amos comes up and he says I still want to be with you and the baby and as we find out there is no baby of course well, we, we obviously knew this ahead of time I think but, it's really lovely that he's the only one left in the courtroom as and well. this is the thing I mean Amos sets himself up to have his heart broken one more time mm. and then he finally at least to his own credit he finally walks out on his own she doesn't say yeah. just leave. He just goes. She doesn't even acknowledge anything about the baby. All she says is they didn't even want my picture. I can't understand that. No, no. She does say what baby. She says there never was any baby. Yeah, but I mean, like after that, she doesn't stop to have a conversation with them about it. It's just like there was no baby. And then it's just like all that she's thinking about is the press. Yeah, because she doesn't respect Amos. Never did. Not at all. He was a meal ticket. We've established that, you know, kind of early on. And it continues on here. And then we have this bit where um roxy's singing a solo on stage called nowadays and she looks pretty good about it and then we find out it's just another level of her fantasy and she's actually in some rundown place and i will give renee zellweger this when they cut to the fact that she's not on stage vocally she delivers the song very differently after they cut just falls flat doesn't it it falls a bit flat there's not as much uh tone in her voice now she's not mic'd up the same but she's also trying differently and her physicality is completely different as well and yeah she's sort of in one place and kind of swaying and she, rather than a full sort of band it's just one guy on the piano and it's tay diggs the band leader shows back up yeah i thought it was gives him gives her back the uh music and says here's your music back ma'am whatever and she was all right i did appreciate that she thanked him for that yeah and then velma comes yeah. in and the determination is they both realize, just like Velma said earlier, they can't do it alone. And but double act is what they need because nobody cares about a single act. They even say, didn't she kill somebody? But two guys who are like trying to decide if they want to cast her or not. And they're going, I don't know. You can't keep track anymore. <laughs> you just don't care. Yeah. And Velma says, he says one jazz killer is nothing these days, but two. And we cut from this then into uh, the double act where they go back in the nowadays a bit. Uh, oh, but just before this, sorry, I didn't mention this. They go, we'll do a heavy, Velma Kelly and Roxy Hart. And Roxy goes, I think actually should be alphabetically, Roxy Hart and then Velma Kelly. And this is funny because the two of them actually did squabble about whose name should go first on the poster for Chicago. <laughs> oh. So if you look at it from left to right, Catherine Zeta-Jones has her name on first. But if you look from a vertical line, Renee Zellweger's is ever so sloppily just a bit higher (laughs) on the poster. So if you want to believe in top down, it might not be on the the DVD case, but it is on the poster. The the fact that Catherine Zeta-Jones won Best Supporting Actress says everything, doesn't it? Here's the question then. So Catherine Zeta-Jones first, left to right, Renee Zellweger top uh right is is that i went ahead and looked for it myself and went that actually it looks like a really sloppily made poster you think it's a mistake until you realize no it's, it's just this technique it was also used liam on the credits to the tv show cheers when shelly long and ted danson couldn't decide and so ted danson's name appears bottom left and shelly long's top right so if you read it left to right ted danson's name's first but if you read it top to bottom shelly long's name is first the same thing also happened in um, Tower and Inferno with Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. Did it really? Yeah. Yeah. Just... Um, what, I was, what I was going to say was, <clears throat> you know she says in the, um, shouldn't it be alphabetical order? Yeah. did she say um, Roxy Hart, Velma? Yep. She was like, shouldn't it be alphabetical order, so Roxy is first? Yeah. But then in real life, 
Catherine Zeta Jones is first alphabetically. No, because it's Zeta, isn't it? Oh, Zeta and Zellweger. No, Zeta wouldn't be first. Zellweger would still be first. Z E L before Z E T. Oh, okay. I was thinking Jones. Yeah, no, no, it would be Zeta. So I just had a quick Google of the poster just to just see what you mean. And interestingly, the first two results that have come up, one of them is as you described it, and the other one is the other way around. Oh, it's it? like they've made two posters, one with Catherine Zeta-Jones lower but on the left, and the other one with, with Rene Zellweger's name in that place. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so um, should we get to that? And so we have a big thing. They have their big sold-out Chicago theater uh, Billy Flynn's in the audience. They even get their Tommy guns out. And the audience is like, ha, 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 ha. And Billy laughs. And we're going, like, these women are murderers who walked. We're celebrating yeah. the fact they had guns out. And, like, when they murdered them, no one is going, they didn't kill them. We're going, they mur- like, they shot these people. And yet we're going to show them as guns for entertainment. And that's a really biting criticism, I think, of the legal system in the States. Did you notice the white again? They're in white furs. They strip them yeah, off and they've got white. white flapper dresses and even the guns are white. The guns are white. That's and true, I yeah. love that because all the way through it's been the Hungarian that's in white and the white surrender flag. And it's like this symbol of innocence. And it's like once that once they're out of the trial, they're all in white again. And you again, what's on the stage isn't what's real. It's it's it can be, it can be real for five minutes, but it's all it is. And then the the, the, the show ends. We have a song called I Move On Over the Credits, which was nominated for Best Original Song. And I only bring this up because it was a duet between Zellweger and Zeta Jones. And when they asked him to sing at the Oscars, Zellweger refused to do it, saying she didn't feel comfortable performing in front of that many people. Zeta Jones sings it with Queen Latifah at the Oscars. Oh. So I got to be honest, if I'm going for like the real life squabbles, I'm totally on Team Zeta Jones in this one, man. Totally. So, and that's our film. So, kind of the usual questions. I mean, it feels kind of silly to ask this, but whose story is it? Is, is, is it definitely Roxy's? Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is Roxy's story because it yeah. is all shown through her eyes. I'll tell you what, if it was anybody else's story, it would be half the runtime. <laughs> so, you wouldn't have to do any <laughs> of the songs. Yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely shot from, from Roxy's perspective because of all this imagination stuff. But there's a lot of Velma in there as well. And, like, like we were talking about with the supporting actress thing, like Velma is very much a lead in this. Okay, in this I, I have this written down, so maybe it's a good time to address it. Is Catherine Zeta Jones a supporting actress in this film, or is she a lead actress in this film? She's a lead actress. Though I would say that Richard Gere is a supporting actor, if anything. Well, I'm going in a world where Richard Gere would have been eligible for Best Actor, which I believe he was, then Catherine Zeta Jones has to be the one. She's the first person we see. She's got large yeah. chunks of it. I mean, it, it's very much a two person film. It's it's yeah, the rivalry. Yeah. And she's got loads of songs as well. It's not like yeah. Renee Zellweger is completely leading I mean, the way with that either. Yeah, like this isn't like, I mean, Jack Palance once won Best a- Supporting Actor at the Oscars and appeared on screen for like six minutes. I think Ju- Dame Judi Dench did the same for Shakespeare in Love. That's not what this is. Like, no. like Catherine Zeta-Jones smashed it for a good 30 to 40 minutes of being on screen, if not more. Absolutely. It'd be interesting to find out who was Best Actress that year. Yeah. Oh, I was looking at it earlier, and I can't remember. Are you going to sort of hop on that? Does it count as 2002? Uh, no, you want to look up 2003 Oscars. Okay. I was looking for... You... Go ahead. I can say, would you think she'd still won it? Um, it was Nicole Kidman. Oh, it was Nicole Kidman <laughs> for... Is that The Hours? Yeah. Yeah. The hours? Yeah, she wouldn't have won that. Who? The... Been that Nicole Kidman. 
Yeah, Kibben, maybe, maybe. Or maybe it's the idea they were going to put they were going to put Zellweger up for Best Actress, and you don't want to muddy the waters by putting two people up for it. Yeah, true. And, yeah. and then it bit him in the butt when Queen Latifah also got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. <laughs> but I did get a feeling there might have been some animosity, which actually, if you're Rob Marshall, you're going, actually, that kind of works, doesn't it? Yeah. If the two actresses really don't like each other, like, they even say at the end of the film. You know, because there's, I there's, hate you. They, what, yeah. Why can't we pull them together? Because I hate you. There's only one business where that doesn't matter. That's show business, yeah. isn't it? That's true, yeah. Um, whose side are we on? I prefer Velma in this film, definitely. I think we're positioned to kind of obviously follow the film along with Roxy, but particularly in that last scene with Amos, I think she's absolutely despicable. Um, I've I've got a note saying she's pretty vile, really. No, I'm Velma the whole way through for this. I'm different, different depending on different versions, but for this, definitely, because I don't like... Roxy in there. Maybe the better question is because I think, I mean, Liam. Maybe I'm, I'm assuming. Tell me if I'm wrong here. I'm assuming we all shift from Team Roxy to Team Velma at some point. Well, I was never voting for Roxy. Oh, we're not. One. Okay, so that's no, just, Team Velma. Right so maybe it's a question for me and Ellie. Then when do you shift? Because I shift on when she starts getting her head big with Billy. So right about oh, I can't yeah. do it alone. That's when I shift. Yeah, I think it's probably when you see that more vulnerable side to Velma. But in a similar way, but kind of opposite to Liam, I'm never against Velma. Against Roxy or against Velma? Against Velma. So right from the start, I like Velma and her character. But I also like Roxy. And it's kind of more Mm. a turn, in my opinion, towards Roxy. Okay. When she... Yeah, I think it's it's around that time when she gets too big-headed, but particularly at the end. I think you obviously watch... You watch it back in the eyes of liking Velma more um, and because if you know the story you're automatically going to prefer Velma from the start I'm not going to tell you that your interpretations are wrong because you're totally free to feel however you feel about any character you want I think thank you very much I, I think the director what they want I believe they want us to side with Roxy at the start which is why they make Fred Casely so violent it's also yeah. the importance of that scene early on when Velma's a bit mean to Roxy when yeah. she's delivering her underwear and asking her for that's, some advice. That's true. I don't like Velma at that I think point. that's designed to make us go, I prefer Roxy to Velma. Liam, at, at that point, were you still kind of, no, I'm, I'm not Monsieur Velma? Uh, but I like, well, both. Okay, that's, that's, that's totally fine, yeah. But I, I, I switched very quickly with Renee Zellweger's character, Roxy. Do you know what I mean? I, I very quickly yeah. cottoned on to her. Yeah. So... You know yeah. what, though? I made that switch a lot earlier. And it's a bit of a trope. You know, there's there's the mean girl, and then there's the girl who sort of supersedes her and takes on all the negative qualities that mean girl once had. It's been done in a million films, including Mean Girls. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know what, though? I, I say I like Roxy from the start, but she is really annoying at the start. Like, she, you know when she's in that scene with, with Fred? And, I mean, I don't obviously condone anything that he does, but... That part where she's like, oh, say it again, Fred, say it again. It's like, I've only listened to her saying yeah. this a couple of times. And if he's been listening to it all night and all month, yeah. me. I mean, but this... I'd want to break up with her as well. I mean, she's clearly positioned in that regard as a victim. She was lied to, then she was dumped and unsaid. He could have let her down easy. He doesn't. Oh, yeah. Right? No, to- totally agree. Like, he's he's completely wrong, but she's just but really whining. Really nice Amos anyway, is she? Well, no, the whole idea that she, we, we open, then we find out Fred Casely is also cheating. Like, and that's not in the, in the actual, that's not in the script for the stage show. Like, they really go out of their way to make sure we know that Fred Casely is a scumbag. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. But I didn't like it. I mean, right from, you know, with the Amos bit, you know, where he's trying to take the fall for her. Yeah. And, uh, and she's, she's a terrible like, wife. Right. You know. Um, best in show. I'm going to call this best in show. So who's, you know, uh, I'm not, you can talk about, I'm not necessarily going favorite character. You can talk about that if you want. But but who did the best job, do we think? Is it, I mean, in my mind, there's like two, there's two really easy ones for me, but maybe I'm, I'm, I'm offering myself on this. Ellie, thoughts? Um, I think Roxy is my favorite. Um, okay. I do, I do absolutely adore Rennie Zellweger. Okay. Um, I'm a big, big Bridget Jones fan. Um, but, I think, D- different character. <laughs> oh yeah, very, very, very much. <laughs> and I much prefer her Man, and Bridget Jones. Can, can you imagine what, but... what the Renee Zellweger from Chicago would have done to Hugh Grant when he like screws her <laughs> over? <laughs> yeah. Oh Christ. Yeah, but um, I think her kind of range of dynamics within the show—not vocally, but just in her acting, like the the kind of vulnerable vulnerability that she shows and the aggression and the sass, everything that she brings to it. She's definitely not my, my most likable character. And as I said, no, I think no, at the fine. end she's completely vile. But I think her, her character... Her know, performance. Her character and her characterization yeah. are fantastic. Liam? I'm going to disagree on that because I think that it's very tongue-in-cheek with the way she put the tears on and the way she does the dramatic fall... It's not real. It's just over too much. But that's part um, of her character. Is it supposed to be that we're in on it, though, Liam, and that we know yeah. it's a fake fall because we get to be inside and know she's 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 fooling everybody? Well, I know, I know, but that's I don't okay. I didn't like. It. And you don't have to think it's the best performance. So, so, so who whose was it for you? Uh, Amos. Oh, really, John C. Riley? Yeah, only because um, it's so easy to overlook his part. And it's so easy to uh, forget him, obviously. Um, but it's the way he delivers the lines. It's the way he he doesn't overplay it. And again, going back to like we've said in previous podcasts, you know, like Gary Oldman in Dark Knight, it's such a great performance, and that's not overdone. Yeah, where he could have overdone it, and he never did. Yeah, it's the character who knows what his role is. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. an understated performance is the loudest performance you can give. Yeah. 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 Catherine Zeta-Jones does an amazing job, and she definitely deserves the win that she got. Um, I like Queen Latifah in it. I think she's really good. Um, Richard Gere's really good as well. Yeah. Can you, can you, do you have a single winner? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, Amos is my favorite character, beyond a shadow of a doubt. When I went out for the musical, it's the only one I put down on the slip. It was, if I don't get Amos, I'm okay not being cast. Because I think it can be Amos. I think it's an absolute rule that, if done right, can um, can, can be very powerful in its way. Uh, so I was determined to go one of two ways. And I was basically going to choose whoever you didn't, Liam. So if you're going to talk about that, then I'll talk about the Oscar winner, Catherine Zizita-Jones, and say that... I thought she was tremendous, and I was not going into the rewatch expecting to like her as much as I did. I don't rate Catherine Zeta-Jones as an actress that much. I can't tell you one other film I really like her in. I, I, I liked her in Entrapment, but that's a very different film. Yeah. Liam, anything? Same you yeah. I mean, I, I told you at the beginning of the podcast, she was someone who I don't really like as an actress. Yeah. Uh, but in this, she 
she showed me something in her that I gravitated to watch on screen. So whenever she was on screen, I watched her, not Renee Zellweger. Um, So, yeah, I agree. I agree with what you just said. I'd just like to clarify, I do think that Catherine Zeta-Jones is phenomenal in it. Phenomenal yeah. in this, and like she's definitely very, very close second for yeah, me. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying Zellweger was bad in this, or that. Again, I want to do a special shout out to Queen Latifah and Dan. She's amazing as well. She was great. To be, to be honest, I really, really like all of them, and this this film has got a very kind of select, small group of lead roles and lead actors, and I mean, even the what I would class as the supporting actors have got very significant roles, and I love them all. I'm going to flip the order I had things in for a moment here, because uh, I usually go somewhere else here, but I want to do, is this anybody's best role ever? It's Catherine Zeta-Jones's best role ever, I think. Oh, yeah. To be fair, I think she's someone who's ended up in films that haven't been very good. And she actually yeah. had, I mean, she should definitely sing at more Christmas parties, is what I've learned, because <laughs> then she gets offered really good roles. She should do more musical theater, is what she should do. Yeah. Find more she did, though, big screen adaptations. Did she? She did West End stuff. Because because now she's because she's British, yeah. right? Or she's Welsh? Yeah. Welsh. Well, she's yeah. Welsh, yeah. And I mean, really, she's best known now for being Mrs. Michael Douglas, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. But she was in a TV series years and years ago. Oh, really? With um, David Jason. The man with two first names. Sorry. The man with two first names. David Jason. Yeah. yeah. What was the name of the show? Darling Buds of May. I've heard of it. But anyway, so was that? Theory, and that launched her career. Okay. Right? So, and she did West End stuff after that. Okay. So Catherine Zeta-Jones were definitely going best role ever. Um, Queen Latifah? Mm. I don't know her from anything else being I, even moderately. I was looking up earlier and I've seen her in different what, stuff, be- but I don't Beauty know. Beauty Shop, I think I've seen her in, but like it's good, but it's not this. I mean... It's difficult because some of them she's a leading actress and some of them she's this, but I'll take her in this. Yeah, because I can't think of anything else that I've seen good that she was in. Because this is someone who's on screen for 12 minutes. Like, this yeah. is this is yeah. a supporting actress role is what this is. Yeah. Um, John C. Riley, I think I think best film ever for him. Yeah, because yeah. I'm not a big fan of the comedies. Yeah. Um, what? So then really, I mean, Zellweger, it's not Zellweger's best role ever. Absolutely not. I mean, she's won Oscars for other things. Uh, Bridget Jones, you can give her credit for that. She's great in Jerry Maguire. I haven't seen any of these people in anything else. So you, I don't have anything to compare them you to. You haven't seen Bridget Jones? Sorry, what? Not properly. You haven't seen Pretty Woman? No. What? <laughs> I take real offense to the fact you haven't seen Bridget Jones. Yeah, Bridget Jones is one that I really would have thought you might have run into. You and definitely to, Pretty Woman. I absolutely mean, need to watch old, Bridget yeah. Jones. That's an, okay. that's another interesting question. Bridget Jones or Pretty Woman? That's another interesting sort of qualm. There's another poll we'll put up. What should Georgia see first, Pretty Woman or Bridget Jones? Bridget Jones, Bridget Jones, Bridget Jones. And so uh, my little grumble, is there anything that was about this film you kind of went, that wasn't a goat. That was me going, anything? No. No. Hmm. No, visually, I liked it. I liked the, the montages and the, the beats with the, the music and real life and the, in her brain and real life, how they merged together. I loved, I loved all that. I loved the chore- choreo- choreography. Mm-hmm. I didn't say the word. Um, stylistically, I loved it. Uh, visually, I loved it. I loved how it made you think more. 
No, for me, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, I'm racking my brain here to think of something I could criticize there's, about this film. There's not anything. It's such a good film. Like, Very well done. Like the pa- I'm usually lately I've been Mr. Pacing, haven't I? But the pacing's great. Yeah. Uh, at times, I was a little underwhelmed by Renee Zellweger, but like when uh, we, we talked about Roxy, I didn't like Roxy. Oh yeah, as a song, didn't like Roxy. Yeah. Um, I guess it feels Roxy's a bit one note, and Roxy is one note. She's written as a one note character. That's the problem when you, when you do a musical is you actually got less time to develop character in that regard. It's just yeah. and okay, here's my one thing. I've got one. And it's not really a grumble. It's a confinement of the genre. Because there's so many songs that we have to go to, the dialogue becomes in many ways just avenues or vehicles to get us from song to song. And as a result, sometimes within all that, you lose the ability to develop characters and you may even trick the audience into realizing there's been no development of characters because we're so busy looking at the spectacle. However... I'm going to say that's a metaphor for musicals as a whole anyway, which is, or the legal system, which is the whole film was about what's on the stage isn't real anyway, and there is no substance to it. So we see that kind of working from the confines of this film itself as well. Before a moment, you look around and go, what's actually happened in this film? And they're all horrible people, and we root for the horrible people. But, the Hungarians, but not. We, but, we, but we forgot about her. Tell me you hadn't forgotten yeah, no, about her. No, you're you totally haven't. Right. Of course we haven't. So, or, or we don't remember her. So that's it, but it's it's a very small thing. But despite that, you don't get... A lot of the time when you've got limited time to fill in the dialogue and stuff, you get a lot of exposition. But the only expositional part that I can think of is the original um, Velma that we mentioned earlier on saying, oh, Mama likes money, basically. There's, There's not a lot of that through the film where it's kind of just basic lines to shoehorn in stuff. We got a little bit of it. Funny Honey is very expositional. And Funny Honey is important for that because we need to know what their relationship is between. Uh, and to be fair, that kind of an expositional song in a musical, that's totally what it's there for. Mm. It's not lazy at all. In, in a film, we're going, if someone walked out and said, that's my husband, he's not very smart, and she's just singing directly to us. Yeah. And a film doesn't let you do that. If Renee Zellweger looked at the camera, unless you're like Deadpool and going, oh, that's my husband, he's not very smart, and trust me, he's not good in bed, we'd go... Unless it was that blatant, we'd go, this is really lazy writing, wouldn't we? But because it's a musical, a character's allowed to b- take a step forward, hit a spotlight, and sing to the audience. I see what yeah. you mean now you've said it, but that is my favorite scene in the show. I really, really like that song because of how it plays with reality and her mindset and how it flips between the two. I've tried very much not to make too big of a deal with the fact I'm a, I was going to be in Chicago and I was going to play Amos. Uh, that scene is so much fun to do mm. because you hear her doing her part as Roxy and you're playing off it without looking at her <laughs> yeah. and it's, and you build and she yells and you, and it just gets to a place and it's a great scene. I'm, I'm just saying it's against the convention of film. That's just, and that's a yeah. confinement of the genre. If you're going to do a musical, I mean, what would Mamma Mia be if you didn't have expositional songs? There'd be, there'd be nothing. But those songs are more shoehorned in. They are shoehorned in. Songs the, in the absolutely. Uh, just really quickly, anybody want to say what their favorite song was? Because a song's more than a song in this. It's an actual like piece. It's a number. Yeah. It's a production. Absolutely. Um, I think my favorite one for the overall spectacle is probably they both reach for the gun. 
I really like that That's kind of good. puppeteering ventriloquism aspect of things. And I think, like I said earlier, I think Renee Zellweger in that is amazing with her physicality. Um, and I really like the song as well. But I really, really struggle to pick a favourite because I love so many in this show. Liam? The opening song. All, all that jazz. jazz? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And the way it was I'm produced. Yeah. Pregnant Catherine Zeta-Jones. can absolutely <laughs> understand why she wanted to play Velma because of that song. Because whenever I thought, would I rather be Roxy or Velma, that's what it comes down to is whether you get to sing all that jazz. I really like Razzle Dazzle. And is that including, like, that's everything, like the visuals to go with it and everything? Uh, I think so, yeah. I- I'm going to go with uh, Cellophane. And again, it's not because I was going to play it. I think, Liam, you often say, when we ask you your favorite characters, your favorite bits, you often go, it's the one I most closely identify with. And I think the yeah. reason why I only went for Amos and only Amos I tried out for it is I just get, I think I, under- I just get Amos. I'm like, at some points in my life, I feel like I've been him. I, I kind of get that idea. Well, he's the most human, isn't he? He is the most human. And in a world where everybody maybe is looking to be razzle-dazzle and Billy Flynn and we want Billy. I, I don't, I've just always gravitated towards Amos. He's always been, for years, I've gone, I want to play Amos one day. And this film, I should mention, we have a friend, Liam, you and I have a friend called Tom. We do? We do. And I saw this film for the first time with, with Tom, actually. He sat me down and, and showed me the film and I was like, I don't want to watch this film. I don't want to watch Chicago. It's all dancing in it. Why are we doing this? And then over the course of the thing, I was like, wow, it's amazing. And it, Amos, the character of Amos just got me, just gripped me from the start. And uh, so that, and I've got a soft spot for it's one guy on a stage by himself with a spotlight and you've got nothing else to fall back on. Not backup no, dancers, not harmonies. What can you do? And especially in this case where a lot of it's really low key until you build to a big finish. And I'm like, there's a skill in that. And I just, I just really like, and the whole clown and Charlie Chaplin thing. I just really like that as well. So that's my, although I could have named a half a dozen, both for the guns. Excellent. All that jazz is excellent. Razzle dazzles a, a, a great number. So yeah. Yeah. So uh, really quickly on the way out, let's play the age game. Uh, Ellie's got the, the the numbers, Liam. So just, it's just me and you. It's just me and you. We can okay. get through this pretty quick. And those of you at home, please feel free to uh, join in. Shout really loud at your car speaker. Well, it can't be a car speaker. We're all on lockdown <laughs> at your Bluetooth speaker. So we'll start with Renee Zellweger. I'm going to say 33. See, I'm not going to go much different. I'm going to go 34. She's 33. Oh, well done. One, <laughs> one, one nothing, Liam. <laughs> It's, it's Actually, interesting because I thought be she was younger. Point, you bang on. No, no, no. Uh, see, I know her from Jerry Maguire, so I was trying to guess how yeah, long it had been since then. I guess, yeah. Um, what about Catherine Zeta Jones? 37. 35. She's also 33. Oh, the same so, age. I guess I get that. I guess I get that. Yeah. So, all right. One, 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 one. Here we go. <laughs> you said you're about to say interesting, and then you stopped yeah, talking. Yeah, but I'm not. <laughs> That's because I was going to say something else, and I'm it not sure g- if it was true. Okay. So why don't you... Okay, we can come back to that. <laughs> Next up. No, I was right. It, it, I should have just said it. Interestingly enough, Fred Casely was the same age as both of them as well. What, what the actor who played Fred Casely? Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember him at all. Um, so uh, what about John C. Riley? Oh, John C. Riley. Amos. 34. Oh, see. We're going to have a discrepancy on that. I think he deceptively... I think he looks older than he is. I'm even going to take a couple of years off. I'm going to say 40. He's 37. 
So somewhere in the middle of that. What did, you, did you say 34? Yeah. That's a, that's a direct split. We can't give it to anybody. Mm-hmm. Th- there's three between us. Yeah. Richard yeah. Gere? Richard. For a second, though, 37. I mean, that's insane how old he looks, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Just, just saying. He hasn't aged well, bless him. Richard Gere. Oh, talk about best role ever. Talking. We never talked about him. It's got to be Pretty Woman, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Pretty Pretty Woman. All right. But also talking about aging well, like Richard Gere is a proper silver fox. Richard Gere was a silver fox in Pretty Woman. Yeah. Like he did not have like black hair in Pretty Woman. He had silver hair. It wasn't white, but he had silver hair. I just, I'm not talking about how old he is. I just think he's aged really, really well. All right. So Liam, Richard Gere. 42. I think he's older. I'm going to go 46, and I hope we all age as well as he does. He's 53 in this show. Jeez. Yeah. I should have thought of that. <laughs> space right now for I should, anyone listening. It's I should. Picture. I should. I think I hedged because everyone's been so much younger than I thought. Uh, because when Hugh Jackman turned it down, I definitely should have gone ahead and gone. It should be older than that. Yeah. So. All right. No, he is he is a gorgeous, gorgeous man. Just a couple to go. That just one to go. Um, well, I've done it. I've done a couple because I wasn't right. sure if you wanted to hit them both. So Queen Latifah. Queen Latifah, which I'm I'm sure was her name by birth. It it's not. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's not. <laughs> Pardon. He said 38. thirty-eight. I'm gonna go. Th- I'm gonna put her. I'm gonna go thirty-three. Everybody else is thirty-three. Why not? She's only 32. I was going to say 32 when I went to 33. Yeah, she's actually younger than, than both of the but leads, which is interesting. I believe that's 2-1 for me, though. So what else she got? I should quit here, but what else she got? The, the last one I put down was Christine Baranski, Miss Sunshine. Oh, Miss Sunshine. Not little Miss Sunshine. She's very tall. <laughs> Miss Sunshine. 58. 52. She's only 50. Ah! Here we go. I take the here we go. little bit younger, and I would just like to do a shout out for her. She is amazing in The Good Wife. Yeah, she does have a recurring role in The Good Wife. Yeah, she's no, not even recurring. She's 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 a natural cast member. So excellent. So Liam, that just leaves us to talk about next film ever. About our ratings. Oh my word, our ratings. That's also important. <laughs> Jeez, the whole reason why we're here. Uh, Liam, as is tradition, why don't you go ahead and. Uh, See if this topples the Dark Knight. Let's take a look. Liam, where do you have this film ranked? Eight. Eight? Even though you couldn't find a bit you had a problem with? I'm thinking along the lines of other films. Yeah. So the way, the way this works, Ellie, is we don't try and talk someone off their rating. No, I just find <laughs> it really odd that you, you can't find a criticism with a film, but you only give it an eight. Okay. Ellie, just out of curiosity, then I'm assuming I know what your number is going to be. Yeah, it's another ten. I'm another te- back to back tens. No, no, there was Star Wars in the middle of there. That like definitely I wasn't once, a ten. Like I once said to some actors, you're tenning all over the place here. It, you know what? You've just picked. You've picked two musicals, which is a genre that I absolutely love, and did they? They are both absolutely solidly in my top ten films of all time. So I have to give them a ten. So Ellie gives it a ten. Georgia, um, I'm going to give it an eight point seven. I really like it, but um, it does. I think I'm swayed a little bit just because I don't particularly like Roxy in it. I don't, just don't enjoy it, enjoy her story, and obviously it is her story. So if you don't enjoy the person whose story it is, you're kind of going Ugh, a little bit. I think maybe we can see why in the '70s the stage show doesn't work. Because I Absolutely. think I think we're more yeah. I think we're more cynical as a society 
starting in like 95 and things like that. Like Nirvana's come through, people were jaded and feeling bitter towards the establishment. And then something like Chicago makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Than during the 70s when we were at the height of the Cold War. Yeah. (laughs) I think also the further you get away from the kind of reality of um, people being hanged for murder, the like more it comes across as a storyline that we want to enjoy rather than something that's just a little bit too close to the bone. Yeah, good chap, good chap. Uh, I'm going to go nine myself. Uh, I did really, really, really enjoy it. So in order for something to get like a 10, I mean, it's got to be, it's not about being flawless or faultless. Um, uh, it's great. It's, it's good not to have any problems with it, but there's a certain amount of, I don't know what else to define it besides magic that happens sometimes in a film where you walk out being sort of different than you were when you walked in and it carries with you and it stays with you and chicago wasn't that i I think i i kind of not forget it but it's it's just entertainment and not that i mean shoot i mean something can be a comedy and stay with you for a few days afterwards and make your soul lighter than it was when you walked in this isn't that um there are films that that do that even on repeat viewings there's some films and i I know we'll get to them eventually where um my my soul feels lighter for the rest of the day on account of seeing them this isn't that or or it feels heavier and i carry the weight of it and that's equally important but um this just quite doesn't measure that standard so nine out of ten of this nine out of eight gives us 17 and that puts us i believe Seventeen, and it puts us in a tie with things like Back to the Future, Princess Bride, and Moulin Rouge. Or maybe Moulin Rouge was 17 and a half. I go back and check that out. Either way, it's solidly in like a top three conversation and it's a very, very, very good film. And that takes us to next time. And next time we're going uh, to the world of a bit of a listener request, actually. Um, Interesting. Our, yes, our friends at uh, the Little Bitch Podcast, and uh, that's a, I know it's a strange name. Um, they've been I don't know what they must have started about the same time we did, and they've been. I love their accents. They have excellent accents. I don't know where they're from, as the as the token North, North American here up north somewhere. Please tell us where you're from. Tell us we where you're from. We were talking about this last night, and um, they've just been they kind of got into the same time we did, and they, we, they they fire back messages of support, and they've answered some questions I've had. And uh, they, they, they listen to the shows and they, and they give us shout outs and things of that nature. And they, uh, based off one of theirs, they did an episode. And basically, I'm going to do a, like a 60 second ad for them. What they do is they each come with like a gripe. And they say, this is what bugs me about society. This or this. And their listeners vote and determine which one was the correct complaint. They would call it a bitch of the week. And uh, one of theirs at one point was conspiracy theories. And that led them down the rabbit hole to Marilyn Monroe. And so they kind of gave us a little bit of a shout out and said, you guys should give a shot to Some Like It Hot. So Some Like It Hot, Marilyn Monroe, 1950-something. We are going back in time. The DVD has been ordered. We are going to find our way to... And I've never seen this. Have you seen it? I've never seen it. No, I've, I have no knowledge of this at all. Um, and so as a result, we're going to go back and take a look at that. I know it's a musical. Uh, that'll be interesting. And it's interesting when we talk about Roxy Hart kind of doing a Marilyn Monroe kind of shtick. Let's actually take a look at yeah. what that shtick is. In black and white, no less. So if you are out there and you have seen it, excellent. If you're there, It might be one to endeavor to go ahead and see. Because I'm really looking forward to that and seeing if films are of their time. I mean, Liam and I at one point went back and saw like Breakfast at Tiffany's and Apocalypse Now and films from earlier eras. And they had different reactions to us at different times. 
And I'm curious how much of those issues are um, conventions of the time that those films were made. And so that'll be really, really interesting. So thanks for the recommendation to our friends at the Little Bitch Podcast. Uh, if by all means, go ahead and check them out. They finally got on Apple Podcasts. I understand it's been a bit of an ordeal for them. So well done to them. Go ahead. Definitely give them a listen if you get the chance after listening to us. I may even see if they're up for um, weighing in some capacity. I'll just sort of let that sit there and see. Maybe they can... Uh, Give us a thought. We'll, we'll see how that goes. So on uh, outside of that, that kind of takes us. So please join us next time for Some Like It Hot. So for Best Film Ever, I've been Ian. And I've been Liam. I've been Ellie. And I've been Georgia. And we hope that today you enjoyed our razzle-dazzle and all that jazz. We'll see you next time.